my showing time. Everyone okay? Ready, Mayor. Welcome everyone to the Tuesday, July 5th, 2022, Lawrence City Commission meeting. Uh, first, we will have some um, explanations from Porter Arneal about how we run the meeting. Hang on, Porter has to turn off his volume. There we go. Sorry about that. Uh, thank you, Mayor. Good evening, everyone. I just have a few housekeeping items for the Zoom meeting. This meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. Please remember to mute yourself during the meeting unless you are speaking. That chat function for this public meeting is disabled. All chats will go directly to me. Unless you are participating during the meeting, please turn your video off. This allows the active meeting participants to be seen on screen. You will still be able to hear the meeting. When you are participating in the meeting, please turn your video on. If you have any trouble, you can send me a chat. The city reserves the right to mute people or turn individual videos off to minimize distractions during the meeting. And now I'll turn, it back over, turn the meeting back over to Mayor Shipley. Thank you, Porter. Um, next, we will hear some comments from Sherry Riederman about how our public comment operates. Thank you, Mayor. When the mayor calls for public comment, individuals attending in person should approach the podium to indicate they wish to speak. The podium can be raised and lowered, and we encourage you to use this feature to ensure your comments are heard. Please remember to state your name before speaking. Individuals participating via Zoom should use the raise hand function to indicate they wish to speak. When you are called on, please unmute. And again, please remember to state your name before speaking. All comments will be limited to three minutes. <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, let's move on to approving the agenda. The City Commission reserves the right to amend, supplement, or reorder the agenda during the meeting. Do I have any um, motions to change the agenda or motions to approve? Move to approve. Second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 There we go. Thank you. <laughs> uh, any opposed? None. That passes five to zero. Um, next is our consent agenda. All matters listed on the consent agenda are considered under one motion and will be approved under one motion. There will be no separate discussion on those items. If discussion is desired, that item will be removed from the consent agenda and will be considered separately. Members of the public wishing to speak to an item that has been pulled off the consent agenda will be limited to three minutes for comments. Um, are there any items on consent that commissioners would like to remove? Seeing none, are there any items uh, in the room that? Uh... Michael Lawrence accountability, want to pull B as in boy, two D as in David. Thank you. Let's check online on Zoom and make sure there's nothing that anyone there would like to remove. Any items people online would like to remove from our consent agenda? No, Mayor. Okay. Uh, with that, I will uh, entertain motions. 
Move to approve the consent agenda with the exception of B2D. Second. I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Uh, any opposed? None that passes five to zero. Uh, then that brings us to B2D. Mr. Ravi, could you? And the reason that I wanted to pull this is I want to revisit the policy changes that were made at this meeting. There was uh, a document put at each of you uh, up on the dais today, and I sent Brad an email follow-up since I realized he wasn't going to be here. Um, but we did make this is Chief Lockhart at that meeting force policy changing the use of force um, policy. We were reporting an addition of deadly force Here. other than firearm yeah. and then also changing language uh, to reflect uh, injuries seen by a physician. Sherry, could you hold the time? Oh, I'm policies. sorry. Sure. Oh, I'm going to give you a few more seconds. I don't I don't want you to be distracted by your feedback. Oh, I'm not. No, he's, okay. He's All playing right. a tape, I think. Right? Oh, I, I was just hearing what you were saying. Yeah. No. Okay. Carry on. I apologize. So, at this meeting, Chief Lockhart made some changes to the use of force policy. I want to make sure that we revisit this real quick. Um, we were reporting an addition of deadly force other than firearm, and then also changing language uh, to reflect injuries seen by a physician to be more encompassing of when there are injuries to change that to any technique or physical force resulting in a visible or apparent substantial injury. Now, I'm not going to claim to be solely responsible for that coming up as an issue, but that was a major part of a complaint that I made on August 29th about the fact that they throw a man off his porch, injure himself and the officers. An officer had scrapes on his knuckle, so they knew that there were people injured. No medical was called to this scene and the man was taken to the jail. My problem with this is, is that we're making policy changes after we told Michael everything was fine. And I still haven't received the official results on this complaint. We are almost a year in, and this department continues to come into this room and tell you guys that they follow their policies, that they strictly adhere to policy, and they'll go so far as to exonerate federal implicated crimes because it doesn't exist in their policy. The response to my complaint does exist in their policy, and I expect to receive that response. They may not like me. Matter of fact, I'm pretty sure most of them don't, but that's their problem. We didn't have to get to this point. They could have adjusted and treated me with some respect two years ago instead of just now finally starting to do that. I'm going to get these responses. And I expect somebody on this commission to push this police department, or maybe Craig Owens can push this police department to actually follow their policies and respond to complainants. They come in here and say they consult the complainants to the CPRB. I have never once been consulted about a complaint that I submitted, and I can barely get responses telling me that all the officers are exonerated. So when the police department comes in here and talks to you about policy, keep in mind that they don't always follow those policies they swear to. Do you have any questions for me about this? Thank you. Is there any um, discussion? Or questions for staff? 
Did we direct staff to give me a response? <clears throat> Let's make sure there's no public comment. <laughs> Is there any public comment online? No, Mayor. Okay, let's bring it back to the City Commission. So I would like to just make sure that we are responding as required. Um, I don't know if staff could comment on that or if we can just ask the Craig to make sure that's done. If it's been done, I don't know. <laughs> Sure, we'll we'll do a review and make sure the commission gets a response. Thank you. Uh, not the commission, me. No. The Michael, you've had. I'm talking to the right now. It's the commission. I'm talking to Craig right now. So if you could do that, Craig, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, any motions? Mayor, you're not going to need. You're just receiving them. Receiving it. Okay, thanks. Uh, that brings us to public comment. Public comment is allowed to speak on public is allowed to speak on items or issues that are not scheduled for discussion on the agenda. As a general practice, the commission will not discuss or debate these items, nor will the commission make decisions on items presented during this time. Individuals should address all comments and questions to the commission. Each person will be limited to three minutes. My name is Dr. Justin Spies and I'm running as a Republican for Douglas County Commissioner for District 1 and the seat is currently held by Democrat Patrick Kelly. Patrick Kelly is a USD 497 school district administrator and he makes $122,813 a year and that is an increase from his 2020 salary which was $109,938. That's a nice fat raise of $12,875. Seems like a good time for me to point out here that the USD 497 school district continues to be in a massive budget crisis that has led to an increase in teacher and staff resignations combined classrooms, cut school programs, and increase expenses for families. Ask yourself, does that seem right? Why does Commissioner Patrick Kelly make so much money while the school district burns to the ground over lack of funding? Not to mention the outrageous sums of money he takes from the families of Douglas County and taxes. That shows what kind of moral character Commissioner Patrick Kelly has. Reminds me of Bob Marley's songs, Them Belly Full, But We Hungry. Now, I'm not the smartest guy, but Lawrence, I think you've been getting bamboozled, and I think you're starting to realize that now. What are you gonna do about it? My political message is simple. I will expose and oppose these sorry excuses for leaders. If they vote yes, I'll vote no. If they vote no, I'll vote yes. It's really that simple. They tax and spend like crazy and I will not stand for that. And I'm not talking about exposing and opposing just the county commission, but I'll also expose and oppose those here on the city commission, the USD 497 school board and superintendent and the local newspapers and anyone else who's corrupt and incompetent around here. If you find yourself recognizing that things aren't right around here locally and in the nation and you're, and you're not sure what you can do, but you're looking to get involved or are interested in joining a group that takes action, then come join my group. We are active in the streets at all the local political meetings speaking every week here and at the county commissioners meeting and at the school board meetings. Right now we are protesting the Douglas County Health Department infant and child vax clinics going, clinics going on right now and we do this in person. We are actively and openly opposing uh, a protesting against abortion and have organized a pro-life uh, pro anti-baby murder, murder rally on July 31st at 4 p.m. at the gazebo in South Park. We are also protesting Dillons and Kroger who are now paying $4,000 to fund the abortions of 
of their employees. We stand outside Dillon's on 6th and Wakarusa with a pledge that the now ex-customer signed saying they will not spend their money at Dillon's anymore since it goes to funding baby murder. We'll be sending Dillon's and Kroger the pledge with signatures so they know how much money they are losing from our side. We're active at Douglas County Republican Party meetings. I'm running for county commissioner. We are publicly active. We are active and we are serious. There is so much evil going on around us. It's hard for our small group to make it to a protest, all the bullshit going on at the same time. So consider joining us. My email is speecejustin at gmail.com. Email with questions about my group or about my campaign, what I stand for. Always happy to hear from people. I will continue this exact same fighting spirit of unrelenting action if I'm elected, elected District 1 County Commissioner this fall. I will stand up to what's right or I'm sorry, I'll stand up to what's wrong and we'll fight for what's right. I've proven that. Google my name online and, and on YouTube and you'll see. But read with caution as there's a lot of lies and inaccuracies printed about me because all the commies around here are threatened by my message and so they hate me and want me gone. I'd be happy to talk with you about it all. Get out and vote yes on August 2nd to put an end to baby murder in Kansas. And just remember, there's no such thing as safe abortion since it always results in the murder of an innocent baby. Don't let them fool you. When murder is involved, it's not safe. That's called having basic common sense and fundamental moral decency. I mean, if you don't know and understand thank that you. murdering a baby isn't safe for the baby being murdered then i think you got shit for brains and yes, an empty sir. heart thank you clearly a deadly combination hello <clears throat> excuse me my name's linda winemaster i live at 321 stone ridge court and just a little over 23 years ago we moved here when lawrence was a nice little kind of a hippie town the first place we went out to eat the first person we saw was a man so, sign, holding a sign that says honk for hemp this was a great place for families with low property taxes now it seems to have moved towards a socialist socialistic agenda property taxes are high with little care for existing infrastructure i am one of the privileged select homeowners that was selected to pay additional money for queen's road which i am sure i'll be getting my notice soon the thing is I have high enough property taxes. I live on Stone Ridge. I have direct access to 6th Street. I've never driven down Queens Road in 23 years. If it's if that's not enough, and now I have to look at Fantasyland sculpture when I'm driving down Overland Park Road. That belongs in Disney World for $340,000. Couldn't we find dozens of artists here in this town that would have done something it is so out of place out in that area i can't even believe it it exists it was shocking the first time i had to turn my car around the roundabout and go right back and look at it again and brought this in from arizona hmm we, you are not good stewards of taxpayers dollars we all have tightened our belts my husband and i are retired now for going on four years We've lost our focus and direction in this city. We need to get it back. We need to get back to basics. We need to provide services that are necessities, but not your wantless. Get back to basics. My name is Joe Herrick. We, the people, are asking each of you to look at the data rather than following the propaganda dogma. Prior to 2020, any new vaccine is pulled off the market if it causes 50 deaths. The experimental COVID-19 vaccines are still being promoted after tens of thousands of deaths. 
This is the first time in history that a new vaccine did not go to animal trials before being introduced to humans. On December the 10th, 2021, CDC data revealed that 79% of Omicron infections were in individuals that were fully vaccinated. These vaccines do not keep you from getting the disease, nor do they keep you from spreading the disease. In fact, they increase your chance of getting the disease. The vaccines have completely failed. In the 25 to 44 age group, there were 60,000, 61,000 excessive deaths from March 2021 to February 2022. This is an increase of 84% in mortality from a five-year baseline. 61,000 excessive deaths in one year exceeds the 58,000 deaths lost in the 10-year Vietnam War. Illegal corporate mandates were initiated in the fall of 2021. After two and a half years, this vaccine remains EUA emergency use authorization. <clears throat> the airlines are struggling to fill the cockpits because of pilot shortage. Many pilots can no longer pass flight physicals <clears throat> because of mandated vaccines causing blood clots and cardiovascular events. Mandated vaccines for college students are reckless and dangerous. Fertility issues worldwide are increasing at an alarming rate since vaccination rollout. After over two years of pandemic, data on over 2 million healthy U.S. kids under the age of 24, excuse me, under the age of 16, there have been zero deaths from COVID-19, not four, not 12, zero. The age group six months to four years old are 107 times more likely to die from vaccines than they are COVID-19. What are we doing promoting vaccines for kids? This is insane. In my opinion, egregious crimes have been and continue to be committed. Mr. Herring. What will we tell our future generations about what we did to stop these harmful vaccines? Thank you. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Yoav. Before I begin, I'd like to disclose my internship with the City Commission and say that all opinions following are my own, made in my capacity as a private citizen and not affiliated with, endorsed by, or otherwise put forth by the Lawrence City Commission. Two weeks ago, the Supreme Court released its decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health, a landmark case on the legal status of a cornerstone of modern democracy a woman's right to choose what to do with her own body. Their decision to reverse 50 years of judicial precedent is appalling, but ultimately unsurprising. When former President Trump campaigned for the presidency six years ago, he pledged to nominate anti-choice justices to the Supreme Court. Kentucky Senator Mitch McConnell had blocked President Obama's nominee for nearly a year, a choice that paid off when his party's president nominated a drastically more conservative justice. Two justices later, our nation's highest court has been completely politicized. We have to recognize the political weaponization of our judiciary. Today's court is not 
just apolitical, but fundamentally partisan. The majority views apoliticism in the same way they view judicial precedent, as a toy to be tossed aside when a more appealing option presents itself. They have made it clear Roe is just the beginning. The court's radical regressives would have us return to a time before federal protection of contraceptives, gay marriage, and gay intimacy. I realize calls to vote in this time of regression can seem patronizing. Five of the court's nine justices were appointed by presidents who lost the popular vote. But we can't aban abandon the ballot box. Curtailing our voting today only serves those who seek to take away more of our hard-fought rights. Making our voices heard may seem hopeless, but we face an opposition with no illusions as to the power of their votes. They are counting on you to stay home in August. Democracy needs active participants, today more than ever. Make no mistake of it, women will suffer thanks to the court's dismissal of reality. People with ectopic pregnancies will die. There is no sugarcoating the catastrophic effects this decision will have. Conservative advocates will tout this day as a victory for life, but as nearly every major study done in the last 30 years has shown, banning abortions doesn't reduce abortions. Restricting abortion access only increases maternal mortality rates, leaving more women to die. If we really want to be pro-life, the science shows we should maintain access to abortions across the state. In Kansas, we're fortunate to live in a state that currently recognizes fundamental reproductive rights. Many others aren't so lucky. We have to ensure Kansas remains a safe haven for women across the Midwest. No woman should have her bodily autonomy denied, no matter the political composition of her state government. Thank you, and remember to vote no on August 2nd. Maybe part of the reason I can't get the uh, responses is because they just won't talk to me. Police, Craig, nobody. <clears throat> They'll give the response to the commission, but not to the guy that filed the complaint. <clears throat> Chief sat in here and said they'd take complaints anyway. When we submit a complaint to the commission or the CPRB, it just gets forwarded to the department. So unless we submit it directly to the police, we never hear back. Is that how it really works? The last two years have put me in a position of just having to accept the role that I'm in. They tried for a couple of years to put me in jail and they found out they couldn't do it. They made fun of me. They decided to ridicule me in their online emails inside the department. So now my role is to ridicule them. And I'll willing, you know, willingly take that on because they're not going to do a damn thing to me while I do it because I have the freedom as an American to ridicule them. That's my public redress. So this is what they've created. Two years of treating me like a criminal, ignoring the things that I've brought up here, ignoring citizens being beat up and then sentenced to probation when they hadn't really done anything wrong having a hard time even getting through the allocution because they don't know what they did wrong. But that's okay with us, so I ridicule. I'm sorry, but you guys are going to become a target soon. I'll ridicule anybody that gets in the way of some real accountability around here, and I don't care who you are. Is that really what we need to do? Is that really where we're going to head here? Because I have no fear of exposing anything. There's nothing that this town can do to me. You, I, I, I'm 
I think the police have understood that. They've resigned themselves to just watching now. I can get within five, 10 feet of a scene now. I can basically stand on shell casings and they don't say a damn thing to me now. <clears throat> Not more than a few months ago, they were trying to throw me in jail. So I ridicule now. The only complaint, the only complaint that's been sustained by this city that I've submitted in the last two years has been on Levi floor shoots for chewing while he's on duty. The only question remains is what kind of chew was that? I don't know what kind of results you get on your Lawrence Listen survey, but my viewers respond to surveys pretty well. And by a whopping 27%, they think it was probably Skoll or Copenhagen that he was chewing. I'm just going to ask if anybody in this room would maybe clarify that for us and find out what kind of chew Levi was chewing. Hi, I'm Chris Flowers. Uh, I came here to talk about fireworks. Um, I appreciate the city's display. Um, they were kind of near where I work, so we kind of went out to watch them. And we thought it was going to be 9.45 to 10. So like at 10, I'm, I'm ready for the finale. But it just kept going and going. I'm just, um, I think 30 minutes is too long for fireworks. I don't want to be a buzzkill, but like, it's just this... A, a color exploding in the air. It's like, oh, it's blue, it's red. Like how after 15 minutes, it gets kind of repetitive. And here's the thing, we're spending money on that. I, I would rather just, I don't know, do it for like 20 minutes and what whatever fireworks we have for the final 10, we just do it all at once and have a huge finale. Or we just do it 20 minutes and spend 10 minutes, like spend don't buy the 10 minutes worth of fireworks and put that money towards some other holiday we celebrate. Um, it just cause, and here's the thing. I, I was excited to watch them too. I, I could have switched that day, but I was like, no, I'll, I'll work it. Cause I want to see the fireworks. I, 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 it's just that once you, once you start watching, you, you're committed to see the finale, but after 15 minutes, it's like, well, I'm ready for the finale now. And also, um, and also I, I do think it would be a better use of money to, to shorten it and have it go to some, uh, some other celebration we do, but also when it comes to what the city permits, I, I just think it's weird that we're not allowed to shoot our our own fireworks because it's too noisy. Yet we're we're you know it's too noisy for those with PTSD, but we're shooting them off in the middle of the city. How come we can't allow residents to shoot theirs off during like a certain time when we're shooting ours off? Because theirs is going to be less loud than there than the city's. And also, if you look at the city's um their fire like if you the fireworks page they have like saying that fireworks are banned except what's allowed um it says that they're not allowed i guess because of the noise and also it says smoke like that people with respiratory problems you gotta be courteous and not shoot off the fireworks because of the smoke yet one of the what is allowed are smoke bombs so that kind of just it's kind of weird we, you can't shoot off roman candles because the smoke might interfere with your neighbor's respiratory problems but go ahead and light all the smoke bombs you want i i think that's kind of bs and also on the city's thing it does not mention that the reason they are banned i thought is mainly because of the fires they start it's 
I, I just think that's kind of weird that we're, we won't allow some fireworks, but we'll allow smoke bombs, even though Time. it's supposed to be about respiratory problems. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anyone online who has public comment? Hey, good evening. This is Brian Bradfield. Um, I'd just like to make a comment on a voting resolution uh, for this evening. I'm a board member at the Lawrence Community Shelter. And just want to give my support. Oh, I'm uh, sorry. Sorry, sorry. I apologize, no. Brian. Um, can you wait till that item comes up and comment to support them at that time? This is just general public comment. I apologize. Oh, that's okay. Absolutely can. Thank you. Thank you. Is there any general public comment not on items that are already on our um, agenda for this evening? Um, I'm not seeing here. <clears throat> Great. Thank you. Then let's go ahead and move on to our regular agenda items. Uh, first item, consider receiving recommendations from the Public Incentive Review Committee, PERC and consider resolution of intent number 7433. Is Brent right. available? Oh. Right. Good evening, commissioners. Um, Sam Kent, economic development analyst. Um, so tonight we have an application from uh, DECA, uh, DECA Inc, that's D-C-C-C-A, um, for an industrial revenue bond um, financing for the construction of a new project at uh, 1739 East 23rd Street. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and let them take over um, and present kind of what they're gonna do at the facility and how it's gonna work out. Um, and Porter, they have a presentation, so I don't know if you need to hand over control or just let them share. Thank you. I'm Lori Alvarado. I'm the CEO at DECA. I also have with me Nick McGovern, who is the facilities director, and Jim Renner with Bartlett and West. We're going to very quickly uh, run through just a brief um, overview of uh, our project um, and our agency. So um, sharing my screen there. Thank you. So who we are, just wanted to, um, some of you are very aware of our work that we do, but in case uh, you are not, wanted to give you just a brief overview. We are a 501c3 operating in Lawrence, Kansas since 1974, offering community and social services to improve the safety, health, and well-being of those we serve. Uh, we are an accredited organization with the Council on Accreditation and so meet uh, standards in all of our program areas. There are videos. I'm going to skip this video. Sorry about that. Um, I will not spend time, but I would invite you to go to our website and see uh, this video and others about our programs. Just a brief history you see there, 1974 is when we were founded, and you see that we have accumulated a lot of service delivery, both here and across the state of Kansas, um, with our biggest footprint being here in Douglas County. We provide behavioral health services in Lawrence. Um, we have a residential treatment facility at uh, First Step at and it's located on um, 31st Street, it says 23rd. That is uh, where we're building our new one. Um, but 31st Street, it's a women's treatment facility and then an outpatient treatment facility at 23rd Street. Um, you see there the services that we provide in behavioral health and all of those services are provided in Lawrence. 
We also have prevention services seeking to address the challenges of substance use, as well as uh, promoting mental health wellness, uh, working with youth and adults in the community to address uh, evidence-based strategies that will help young people and adults make good decisions about use of substances. We also have tra traffic safety work, working to keep highway safety is safe. So we will do things around texting and driving, drinking and driving, uh, impaired driving, distracted driving, senior driving, and we do work around child safety with passenger seat safety installation across the community. Family preservation services funded by the Department for Children and and uh, families at the state. This is really designed to keep families together, those families who um, might be having challenges. So our work is to strengthen the family. We do have a specific piece of that work that brings our treatment and our family preservation work together with sobriety treatment and recovery teams with START. We also have a child placing agency, which means that we train, recruit, and support foster parents across the state. Um, but we do have a great group of foster parents here in Lawrence and work with Burt Nash on providing respite care for children on the SED waiver. And again, you see many of the services we provide. So what we're here to talk about tonight is um, a new facility at Harper and 23rd Street. And I will hand it over to Nick at this time to just give us um, some brief overview of the facility itself. Great. Thanks, Lori. Uh, so a lot of these uh, programs that Lori just mentioned, if you'll head to the next next slide, Lori. Um, a lot of these great programs that uh, Lori mentioned there, uh, we're going to uh, encompass here in this uh, new facility. So uh, it, it's a really a good service building for DECA. So it uh, is 17,200 square feet in size. Um, the lot size um, at the corner of 23rd and Harper is currently 5.23 acres that has been owned uh, by DECA for about 25 years now. Um, in this design, we have really put an emphasis on trauma-informed care. So we really have thought about how we want to treat our clients and customers. Um, DECA currently owns this property. Um, but that being said, when the design came up and we started having the conversations about building a new facility, uh, DECA's research and evaluations team kind of did a heat study to decide where the best location um, for DECA was to build this, this facility on. And we really honed in and really liked the current uh, property that we had. It just checked all the boxes for us. So uh, currently we offer service at this location um, and we are just looking to continue to offer service at this location just in a new facility. So we, if the very top picture um, is the front of the building, so we've kind of turned this around. So the back of the building faces 23rd and Harper. And we kind of ask why, but one of our key objectives is privacy when it comes to treatment, um, treatment and service. So um, 
that is kind of uh, where we're at. Um, two other things. Uh, we have a, a lot, you might think that 17,200 square feet sounds large. It, it is It is large, but we've also included a 3,000 square foot conference room for um, for conference meetings for us for uh, 50 to 60 person capacity. And then we've also added a 3,000 square foot shell for future expansion for our business. Uh, this being said, uh, DECA has currently partnered with Bartlett and West on a design build. And we have uh, Jim Renner here on the on on Zoom uh, to discuss some of the sustainability issues that we uh, we tackled during our design. Yeah, hello, my name is uh, Jim Renner. I hope the echo here doesn't bother you too much, but I am uh, the design build manager for Bartlett and West. Um, I lead all construction, uh, construction efforts for the company and have enjoyed working with Lori and Nick uh, from concept through development of design and now preparing for construction. Some of the, you know, they're, they're a great organization and they're really wanting to do the right thing uh, for their, for this building and for the community of Lawrence. And uh, with all that in mind, uh, we, we certainly kept in mind uh, sustainability uh, concerns. I have a, a lead AP uh, uh, registration that, that uh, came with some knowledge about the sustainability, but we really wanted to uh, accommodate a number of things with this building. And the very first is the one that Nick mentioned that find the right spot, do a good site selection, services the, uh, the community that's going to be serviced well. Um, but we're going to be offering electric car charging, uh, there's bike storage. Uh, we're using efficient lighting throughout the building. Um, we do, we, uh, Doc has uh, engaged Steve Hughes. He's a local engineer as the owner's rep to oversee all of the design and construction that uh, he's provided a lot of, uh, uh, he's been encouraging all along the way, efficient and low, uh, efficient lighting and power and low CO2 systems throughout design. Um, we focused on good sun exposure and efficient use of sun exposure and daylighting throughout the building, uh, both for energy and for uh, human interaction. Um, we're going to be recycling as much construction waste as we possibly can, use low VOC materials in the construction. Uh, we've integrated water, uh, water bottle filling stations, and it is a tobacco-free building too. Uh, that's just a few of the things, but it gives you the sense of the importance of uh, being a good community member that uh, DECA has, uh, has brought in with this project. Look forward to working with, uh, uh, with the city throughout the project and with DECA. All right, so I think at this time, um, Lori and the DECA team are, are finished. We can go ahead and to any questions the commissioner of the public has. Any questions from commissioners? I'm seeing. Um, I just had a quick question. In uh, all of this looks great, and uh, I appreciate you being here to go ahead and present for us. Um, what did, just curious, what were the plans for the existing 
um, facility now um, after our, or, you know, after the new one is completed or uh, were there any plans for that? Commissioner Littlejohn, at this point, we are trying to enlarge our ability to provide services. And once we've able to learn and move to the new building, we will start considering what it is that we might do with the current facility. So no specific plans are on the drawing board or in the plan at this point. Any other questions from commissioners? Commissioner Finkeldy, you're nodding now, okay. Let's go ahead then and open that up for public comment. Is there any public comment in the room regarding this item? Not seeing anything. Is there any public comment online on Zoom uh, for this item? There's no public comment. <clears throat> okay, everyone. Um, let's bring it back to the commission. Any comments or discussion? I think it looks like a great project. I appreciate your discussion of your sustainability. Um, what you're going to do for sustainability and your efficiency. I really appreciate that. And I just know that the services you offer are stellar that I've, that's been my experience. And I, I do appreciate it. So I don't have a problem moving forward with this. This is commissioner Sellers. I look forward um, with us voting on this. Um, I've come to know Lori. I've, I'm a former intern of DECA, so I know that the work that they do, I've been a part of their work, and to have a service like this in our community that not only benefits our community, but also benefits the region um, is something that we should invest into because that's investing in our human infrastructure. So I look, voting to, I look forward to voting yes on this. Thank you. Uh, Commissioner Finkeldy? I would just jump in and say um, I'm in support as well, not only um, because DECA offers, you know, great services. I'm a big fan of DECA, and I think this is going to be a good step forward. Um, also, just, um, you know, note that we've done this for several others in town, Halton, Boys and Girls Club, and, and others, and I think um, we, we've set the right standard um, to do that, and so I think this falls right in line, and I'll support it as well. Thank you, everyone. I'm sorry, go ahead. I'll make a motion. By all means. I move to approve a resolution of intent number 7433, authorizing industrial revenue bond financing for DECA Inc. for the purpose of accessing a sales tax exemption on project construction materials for the construction of a new outpatient facility that will provide a variety of human of community health services at 1739 East 23rd Street, Lawrence, Kansas. Second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Any opposed? Any opposed? That passes five to zero. Thank you, everyone. Thank and you so thank much. Thank you, everyone. Thank you all for your work, and thank you for coming um, to take advantage of what we have here that could help you. Thank you. We appreciate it very much. Thank you all. <clears throat> Let's move on to number two. Consider a modification to the Jayhawk Club lot number three, final development plan. Good evening, Commissioners. Sandy Day with the Planning Office. This item for consideration is a revised final development plan. Final development plans are typically administrative when submitted substantially in compliance with the approved preliminary development plan for the district. 
This project has a long history of development applications and has changed over time as plans for each phase of that development has become more certain within those initial approvals. The earliest preliminary development plan was approved in 2015, revised in 2016. The 2015 plan included multi-dwelling residential development uses on both sides of Birdie Way. In 2016, the east side of Birdie Way was revised to include mixed residential uses, including duplex and independent living units. Each phase of the plan development has its independent final development plan. Final development plan for this phase was approved in 2021. The, app, the application is a revision to that approved plan that, includes, that included detached dwellings and independent living. Land Development Code provides a process for applicants to revise the phase without restarting the process with a preliminary development plan, but exchanges that administrative process for a public process in front of this governing body. Section 20-1304 of the Land Development Code dictates the process as it pertains to plan developments. Final development plans may be submitted for consideration after the preliminary development plan has been approved. This step was completed in 2021. The request by the applicant is to consider the revised final development plan that is not substantially similar to the approved preliminary development plan. This application, instead of the proposal for the detached and ind independent living that was proposed in the previous drawing, um, is for a multifamily residential development. The code describes a major change as one that increases the residential density by more than 5%, increases the proposed floor area or non-residential uses in a phase, increases the ground area covered by buildings, changes the residential use or building type, increases the building height, represents a change to the preliminary development plan that creates a substantial adverse impact on the surrounding landowners or changes a residential building type by more than 10% in size. Any of these conditions is considered to be a major change as noted, this project does change the residential building type and the land use to all multifamily. The code goes on to recognize that changes may occur within any given development and provides a path forward to accommodate those changing demands while protecting the integrity of the process by establishing a method to make those changes. The code states all provisions of a final development plan may be modified upon the finding by the city, followed by the public hearing, which is what this item is, that the plan is consistent with the efficient development and preservation of the entire plan development. Does not adversely affect the enjoyment of land abutting or across the street from the plan development. Is not grant, granted solely for to confer special privileges to any one person. The Jayhawk Club, also known as Alvamar, was always intended um, the east and west sides of Birdie Way to be developed with multi-dwelling residential uses in some form. The west side was developed with three multi-story buildings. The east side has been modified several times to show that mix of uses I described and is described in detail in the staff report. The north end of the development has included both duplex or detached dwellings in various versions. Multi-dwelling and independent living have been shown in the center and southern portions of that development. The current iteration of the multi-dwelling residential use is for single use, scattered multiple buildings. This makes the overall appearance of the development less massive compared to what's on the west side. 
Buildings are only three stories compared to the four stories on the west side. And additionally, the smallest building is located at the north end of the development, providing a more modest transition to the north. The design or layout of the building and the parking are intended to have the least impact on the areas to the north and to the east that are outside of the planned development district. The overall density is also less than the original designs, while higher than the 2021 plan is still lower than both the existing development to the west and the overall project than originally proved for. The process outlined in the development code provides for an appropriate notice to property owners and the ability to participate in the public discussion about the project without unduly delaying um, through regulatory review by first submitting that preliminary development plan before proceeding with a new revised final development plan. This is more efficient to the developer and still requires all the notice as well as full project review. The attached plan shows the updated development plans for the east phase of the development. There are several conditions that were noted in the staff report that do require minor notes or updates. The project has been through multiple review process and is overall consistent with the development intent of the, of the larger plan development. There is only one remaining phase for the development located to the south of the pool and clubhouse building. Development of that property will require a new preliminary development plan because no use has ever been defined or articulated for that phase. This process is only permitted for those phases that have previously been approved as a final development plan, which this project has. The proposed changes are consistent with the planned use of the phase for medium and high density residential development. The overall number of dwelling units is consistent with the limits imposed by the district. The project will not adversely impact the surrounding neighbors or the public um, and and does not confer any kind of special benefit to any one person. I'm happy to answer any questions you have about the project. And um, I believe the applicant is on the line. I have a question. Um, how tall are the, are the proposed building, bu buildings gonna be? I thought I saw 45 feet. That's the maximum height allowed in the district. I believe at three stories, we are looking at or closer to a 35 foot height. Okay, what was it proposed? What was the approved plan proposed proposal for height? The earliest plan back in 2016 had four story buildings on that west side. So that would have been closer to that 45 foot. Um, at the south, at the middle and south ends of the project, they've also also had larger buildings at three and four stories. But the plan that was approved in 2021, what were the heights of those? Um, in 2021, that project included uh, three detached dwellings at the very north end, and it include an independent living structure. And I think the applicant could probably confirm, I can't remember if that was three or four stories at the very south end. Is the applicant able to answer that? Yes, Paul Warner, Paul Warner Architects. Um, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, that, that's the key. That So the previously approved plans were four stories for an independent living building. Um, so we kind of got caught up between it had less units. So this plan actually has more units. 
even though one of the previously approved plans was actually larger, it still is a problem with increasing the units. But um, going way back, Sandy is exactly right. Four stories, um, larger buildings like what's on the west side. Um, the last plan was the independent living. It was also four stories. It did have some smaller duplexes to the north, but um, these are all three stories. Um, so you're really talking closer to 30 feet at the plate, um, 35 feet through halfway through the roof. So um, one story less than, than what's allowed. Um, the other key thing to look at, I think, is if you were to look at page five and page six of the staff report. So since all of this has started, um, KU Golf Club and KU and KU Endowment has purchased some of the land to the north. So this project stops right at the roundabout where um, a few years ago there would be, there's another acre north of that roundabout closer to the neighbors. So this is just that much further away from the neighbors to the north. Um, these are all three-story, 12-plex buildings, mostly one-bedrooms. So um, while there are several buildings on this site, it is and should certainly be perceived as a much less dense project. And we would probably argue, I think it's, it's better for the neighbors to the north, and it's certainly better at this time than building that large of an independent living facility. So hopefully that answers your question. Thank you. Yes. Any other questions from commissioners? This is Commissioner Finkeldy. I wanted to follow up on that. It looks like Randy has a comment. But um, I was wondering about that when I looked at the, the area north of the cult of the roundabout. Are you saying that area now is owned by um, KU? It's, it won't be in a future phase, right? It's owned by KU. It is owned by KU as that, that is their, um, that area to the north and to the east is the outside practice facilities for the golf team. Yeah. So it is, uh, it is out of our ownership and it's uh, in KU and KU endowment. So it will be there for quite some time with nothing else on it, but yeah. uh, this facility for the golf team. Okay, thank you. And then Mayor, I think Randy had something to say. <laughs> Yes, Mayor, uh, Commissioners, this is uh, Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. And, and looking at this matter and making a decision on it, you're going to be applying the law to facts as you hear them. So this is a little more beyond administrative. It goes into the quasi-judicial. So it would be a good idea probably at this time to disclose any ex parte communications that you may have had. Thank you, Randy. Um, Mayor Shibley, I've had none. Any other commissioners? Commissioner Sellers, I've had none. Commissioner Larson, I have had none. Commissioner Littlejohn, I have had none. Commissioner Finkels, I have had none. Thank you. Thank you, Randy, for reminding us. I appreciate that. Uh, any further questions from commissioners? Sandra, this is Commissioner Sellers. I, I wanted to make sure I heard you correctly in the presentation. You had said that some of the changes between the the original plan and this final plan, that there was a decrease in land space. Did I hear that correctly? Sandy Day planning, yes. Um, the earliest project actually extended the ground 
a little bit further north of the cul-de-sac. And if you look at figure two in the staff report, what you'll see is the boundary of the district. That northern piece, along with a large portion of, of an area that is part uh, that was part of the original golf course, which was the um, the area where where golfers could go out and shoot shoot the balls, and the practice area, um, which is not part of the the PD overlay district. Um, that area is the piece that was acquired by the university. And so that's why there's a change in the land area. So it's a little bit smaller area um, and the applicant's correct. It does overall move that project away from the existing residences north of the cul-de-sac. Okay. Thank you. I just wanted to make that connection that the decrease in land space was due to the, the land being acquired by KU. Okay. Uh, any other questions from commissioners? Yeah, I had one more on regarding the density. Um, could somebody explain to me what I thought I heard was this is less dense, this proposal is, but when I'm reading the staff report, it seems as though the number of bedrooms are going to be more than what was originally approved. Is Am I reading that wrong? Sandy Day planning. Um, the components of density deal with the total number of dwelling units and not necessarily the number of bedrooms. The number of bedrooms is important in the calculation of both parking and bicycle parking. Um, in 2015, for this particular phase, the project showed 154 total units. In 2016, there were 164 units. Plan that was approved in 2020 included 103. Then the plan in 2021 that had predominantly the independent living dropped down to 75. And then this project is at 132. So the number, the total number of dwelling units, if you compare them to the last three iterations, the total density is up a little bit. Um, but it is actually down compared to the original vision of the project that the original plan development was approved at 164. So the overall density is in this iteration around 20 unit dwelling units to the acre. Um, the base district, and remember plan development is an overlay, so we still go back to that base district is 24 dwelling units to the acre. So it's less than than's permitted in the density and it's less than that 2016 plan, um, but we've had iterations of the plan in between. And so that's part of why this project is being brought forward to you as a revision to an approved final development plan. Thank you, Sandy. Um, Commissioner Littlejohn, I, I just wanted to jump in and add to what uh, Vice Mayor Larson was saying. Was it in, Am, am I right, also looking at this, that the total pervious area, um, the fact that, that it, it's increased means that uh, um, there's uh, it would contribute to it being less dense as well? Sandy Day planning. Um, the impervious surface in this particular design has a lot to do with the requirement that the parking be provided for the residential component. 
This is a very unusual and unique plan development in our community. It has multiple phases. It had two phases that had the clubhouse kind of to the southwest and then all of the pool and amenities buildings immediately to the south of this phase. A requirement of the early project required that all of the residential parking be provided on the two residential lots because this project also includes on-street parking. Now, that happens to be a private street for that segment of Birdie Way, um, and, and that parking is shared throughout the development, so you could have multiple events going on, but the early iterations of the project from the planning commission discussion and ultimately in those approvals required that the residential parking be met um, on those pieces without the shared parking. So it does drive up the impervious surface a little bit. Um, but again, this project has been looked at holistically, not only by its phase, but by all of the lots that were included in the zoning. Any further questions? One more question. Uh, I thought I read something in the report about artificial turf and the need to modify the proposed amount of turf that would be on the property. Um, is that going to be something that will be required, uh, making that area smaller? Sandy Day planning. The, the final development plan as submitted does include um, quite a bit of um, artificial turf and the requirement is that that be limited, small and limited. Um, so staff's recommendation was to reduce the amount of that artificial turf that's shown on the project and really restrict it to the areas that are most needed, um, areas around the building, areas along public, uh, I'm sorry, around Birdie Way should, should be um, similar to the rest of the development with live vegetation. Okay, thank you. Any other questions? Commissioner Finkel, I went dark there for a second. Oh, there he is. Um, I I do have a couple things. Um, it it's fantastic that uh, so much energy was spent showing us about the parking. Um, but you did mention the part which is a private street. Could someone be sure and clarify for us which is and isn't city responsibility? And could someone talk about um, any traffic uh, studies briefly uh, regarding uh, intensifying density here? Sandy Day planning. I'll um, take a couple stabs at this and then the applicant may want to speak to it as well. First and foremost, a traffic study was required with this project. Birdie Way, which was constructed with the very first phase, was designed actually with an expectation and intent of the higher density than we saw in the later versions. So even though this particular iteration has 130 two total units, it's still lower than what that street was initially designed at in 2016. So that component of it, the ability of that street to handle the traffic and the expected use in there does not change. On-street parking was, um, if you want to think of it, it's, it's kind of um, 
similar to what you would see in the smart code where you can have on-street parking. It is similar, uh, well, it's identical to some of the mixed use zoning we have in other districts of the city where you can count on-street parking toward your required parking allotment. So from the traffic component, it was reviewed by city staff. It met all of the criteria um, for the traffic. I'm not sure exactly how the maintenance piece of that goes, um, where the public street stops at the south end of the district and picks up again, basically, at the cul-de-sac and carries on is definitely city's responsibility. I would let the applicant speak to that center section. Yeah, um, the way I think of it is, so there's the roundabout on Birdie Way on the north side, and there's a cul-de-sac um, on the south side by the um, original clubhouse, now the Jayhawk Club clubhouse, and the street in between all of that is private. And so the owners of this lot, the lot to the west, the other lots that Sandy mentioned, um, they all get to maintain the street. Um, and if for some reason, if it, it didn't, whatever, the city can certainly chime in, but um, it's brand new street. It is meant to handle all of this traffic. Um, you may remember, so Birdie Way is a brand new street to get you to 15th or um, Bob Billings. And we managed to get rid of the little goofy part of Crossgate that you used to wind around um, on the houses to the north. So they essentially have a, a private access to the uh, roundabout and then go out to Bob Billings Parkway. Um, and just emphasize again from the original plans, this is much less dense and the land area is smaller. So um, it is, it's designed for it has traffic calming um, devices further south on the public streets. Um, so it, it seems to be functioning very well. Thank you. Sandy, I want to be as clear as I can be. Um, I want to be real clear about what the city will never be responsible for. Sandy Day Planning. May I clarify that you, are you referring to the private street? Yes, I am. So um, the city does have a policy um, that if developments want to petition the city to take over a private street, they go through a petition process that starts off with municipal services and operations. And one of the first criteria is, is the street built and constructed to city standards, which would have been a requirement for this project. It would not have necessarily had street public improvement plans, but it would have been required to be in the necessary right-of-way I'm sorry, within a necessary easement to be able to accommodate that. Um, to say that the city would never ever take over the maintenance of that, that would be a petition that pro future property owners could, um, through a established processes, make, make that request and it would ultimately come back to a future sitting city commission to address. Okay, so let me um, just clarify what you're saying is, uh, as you may know, in the past, there have been privately built streets, which were not built to city standards, and therefore, we cannot take uh, possession of them 
even if the homeowners association or association or neighborhood would like us to. But what you're saying is these are built to a city standard, which in a very far off eventuality could result in the city needing to take responsibility for them. Sandy Day planning. The city would only take responsibility if a petition was made, if the petition could meet the criteria of what whatever is documented in that policy and the city commission agreed to it. Thank you. Any other questions from staff? Paul, I did see your hand up. Go ahead. I just, yeah, um, Mayor, I just wanted to chime in that um, these city, they were done with public improvement plans and built to city standards. Um, it is a very well built street. I would think um, to Sandy's point of a petition to a city commission, we can obviously never say never, but um, with all of the parking on both sides of the street, the way it's laid out, um, I, I just, I think it would be a pretty hard sell for anybody to try to convince MSO or the city to take this over. Um, so I, I, I would hope that alleviate your concern, but, but it is built um, public improvement plans, well-built, uh, completely different um, system today than, than 20 years ago with private streets and stuff. So it is, is a well-built street. Hope that helps. Thank you. Thank you. Any other questions? Commissioner Finkel, dialogue, Jerry, there. You're good. Okay. Let's make sure there's no public comment. Larry Northrup. Yeah, I had a public comment. Larry Northrup, 1560 El Dorado immediately north of the project. Uh, just found out about the project through the newspaper last night. Um, I appreciate Commissioner Larson asking questions about the project as, as she figured out, I mean, a 76% increase in uh, dwelling units, um, I think changes what uh, Sandy said in that it, it may or may not adversely affect the neighbors. You know, I guess I speak on behalf of neighbors that haven't had a chance to review this. Um, if we want to have a, a corridor going down Crossgate that feels similar to, to New Hampshire Street, you know, in the four-story buildings, then um, I think the original intent on the Birdie Roundabout that I'm next to was to have duplexes and graduating up to these four-story units, um, obviously with a, you know, 76% change to last year's approval. Um, we're trying to go back to something from 2015 and comparing it to 2015's plan, uh, you know, I don't think is correct. So appreciate uh, the questions that you're asking and getting educated on the project. Uh, I just wish some more of my neighbors on El Dorado, you know, could be uh, involved in the process. That's the project right there. Thank you. Anyone else online? That's all the public comment. Um, staff, I want to make sure that we're all clear about the rules of um, or the protocol for who is and isn't notified for situations like these. Okay. 
Sandy Day planning. The notice mm-hmm. requirement is to uh, send letters to property owners within 400 feet of the project to um, also to provide signs. And there was, I believe there was a notice in the paper of the proposed use. So those are the requirements that are set out in the land development code for notice. Follow up on a question with that. So the notification to the neighbors, I thought I read in here was June 14th, which is what, just a couple of weeks ago. Is that standard for the letters to go out that late and really not give the neighbors an opportunity to, or I should say limited or minimal opportunity to respond time-wise? Sandy Day planning, the requirement is that the notice be provided a minimum of 20 20 days in advance of the public hearing, which I believe this met. So there's no requirement for them to have a neighborhood meeting to let the neighbors know. There's no requirements like that, I take it. There, the Sandy Day planning, there is not. I have to, I have to admit, I'm really surprised that um, the, that is a very active street. Um, I hear from the neighbors over there all the time. Um, they, I think, communicate pretty well with each other. Um, I'm, I'm just surprised that the comments is that, that they're surprised about this project. So um, we were actually supposed to be even on in June. So I think the signs have been up longer than they were supposed to be. Um, Again, you know, the city staff does the notification, but um, I, this is just, it's a better project than the previous one, just height-wise. So I just want to emphasize that, but thank you. Um, staff or, or Mr. Warner, are, are those people in that neighborhood in a homeowner's association that they pay dues to? I am not aware that they are, but, you know, Mr. Northrop can probably address that, but I just know several of the people that back up to the practice facility um, and we discuss this project, um, you know, every now and then. So it, that's just a little bit surprising. Um, I'm a, uh, Mr. Northrop, I'm going to make sure staff doesn't has, have a response and then I'm, I'm interested in your comment. Go ahead, Sandy. Uh, Sandy Day planning. I, I cannot confirm if there is a homeowners association in that particular area or not. Thank you, Sandy. Mr. Northrup, could you comment on the homeowners association? Yes, we have a homeowners association with El Dorado Drive and three cul-de-sacs that come off of that. And do you have a, a board that meets regularly? We do. And is it the operated in any way by the same owners of of these properties or is it separate uh the homeowner association is not operated by the uh jayhawk club owner i don't believe um okay. I, I i don't know who the applicant is for this project other than mr warner that's representing him thank you any other questions or comments among commissioners Um, oh, I have a quick one. I was just wondering. Um, 
I, I was listening to the conversation. Mr. Warner, um, you said that uh, you thought this would be coming up earlier, so the signs were up earlier. Do you would you be able be able to recall exactly when you put up put up those signs? Um, God, not off the top of my head, but we, you know, we the process is the the city makes the signs, uh, we pick them up. Um, somebody from my office puts them where the city tells us to. They give us a map. Um, we take a picture of that. Um, of course, at night, I got nobody else here in my office. Um, and we send that to the city staff or we keep that so that we can prove that, you know, that the signs are where they're supposed to be. Um, and that's that's the process. And that's kind of how we handle it. So, um, I mean, I'm confident when Denny tells us to come get them, we come get them and we get them up. Otherwise, we lose our spot. So we are pretty thorough about making sure all of that gets done. I hope that helps. Yeah. Thank you. Any further questions? Nope. Okay. I'm sorry. You made a, you made a sound. Uh, uh, Commissioner Finkeldie, are you all right? Yeah, no, no questions. Okay. Um, any conversation? Concerns? I... I like the project and I like the uh, the amount of housing it would provide, but hopefully I'm hoping um, with the questions brought forth uh, through our various uh, commission that we can, do, especially in situations like this, we can do a little bit better job of uh, reaching out to homeowners next time. So. Commissioner Finkel, I would just say, I, I, I do agree that, um, I like this project a lot better than, than the 2015-2016 plan and even the, the 2021 plan in that one, um, you know, if you drive down that road, the, the buildings to the west, the four-story buildings in the west, do, do loom high over you. If you line the street on the other side with four-story buildings, I do think that would have a, a whole different feel. Um, and... So I, I do like these three-story buildings, these three stories, three, not only are they three stories, but they're separated buildings. Um, and I think that will break up um, and be much more residential-like as opposed to apartment-like. And then second, um, I guess, fortuitously or unfortunately, the, the fact that KU bought the land to the north of the roundabout, again, provides that buffer from the neighbors, um, a natural buffer. Um, when you look at those 2015 and 2016 plans, you were building new structures right up against the neighborhood. Now you have separation there, um, which is typically considered a good thing. And so um, I like this plan better than, than the previous plans. And so I'm gonna support it. I think I would echo quite a bit what um, Commissioner Finkel and I said regarding the um, the fact that they pulled back that property line and sold it to KU that adds about another 250 feet of what would be essentially green space or open space that will never be encroached upon by development. And then also the, the idea that the, the buildings will be 30 to 35 feet tall versus the some of the original plans up to 45 feet tall. So um, it kind of 
scales that back, the project back in that way, and it adds some buffer zone that wasn't there before and didn't have to be, but now it is. I really appreciate that. So I am going to support this for for those reasons. The idea that um, the neighborhood, the notification of the neighborhood, this has been an ongoing problem for for years that that um, there's some aspects of our planning where neighborhood you know the required to contact the neighborhood association and actually have meetings um, sometimes they aren't it just depends on what part of the program you're in and it would be nice to get um, a better more consistent um, process that would re I think should require them to get a hold of the neighborhood association and actually talk to them directly before we get this far in the in the project. Commissioner Finkel, I'm noting that for the new development code discussion. Yes. Yeah. Bingo. And this is Commissioner Sellers and I'm I'm Commissioner uh, Finkeldye beat me to the punch. Um, in regards to notice of community public in regards to development and hearings, that's all policy. And so um, there's never been, I don't know if, if there is a blue ribbon um, process um, in regards to notifying the public, um, especially of development. It's something that we learned in school that is been the, the the great mystery of of local government is how do you you know ensure that you reach the public and so it's always something that you're trying to attain to whether it's community engagement for um, services or it's engagement around infrastructure and and housing so um, you know it is good if we make a point to know that that, that is looked upon um, in our policies and in our codes how we engage because it's different whether it's a hoa um so if you're talking about a subdivision or um, a community that may or may not have a neighborhood association because most of our communities here most of our neighborhoods here don't so um, it's going to look different and it has to be able to be equitable and impact and be intentional in a way that it meets the community where they are and these are things that ever change so i'm glad we brought that to the attention and that um, when that time comes that we need to look at that, that we ensure that staff or the steering committee does look at that and that we, if there's opportunities for us to provide input, that we need to make sure that we provide that input to staff. What are we looking for in regards to um, engagement? Is it a bigger sign? Is it, how do we identify those groups? So it's good to say it, but it's also, it's more important for us to direct staff on what is it that we're specifically looking at in regards to that. So um, I have no objections to the um, to the plan. Um, I did notice um, there, there was a piece in regards to interior, uh, interior and perimeter with the parking about the shrubs. Um, <clears throat> And I remember in a previous commission meeting in regards to trees and shrubs and making sure that we are counting for um, what is required to be on the development. And I did see that it was noted in red that the shrubbery did not meet the requirements as noted in the plan. And so I would like to direct staff to ensure that those that shrub count um, is as um, recommended which was, I do believe was 66, but the plan set for 59. So outside of that, I have no objections to this proposal. I, I do wanna return just for a second to some of my questions. Um, as other commissioners will know, in our CIP a neighborhood that was in an HOA, um, was so underserved in their road structure that they 
asked that to be added to our CIP. Um, the um, confusing nature of private roads um, is one that we should consider. I think, uh, considering in, in the last few years, we have been approached by neighborhoods um, who, who paid dues or paid extra fees for roads to be um, um, cared for by an alternate source and then ultimately needed to come to the city to ask for that to be taken care of. I think that's important. I appreciate um, Mr. Warner's comments that how highly how high the quality is of that build. Nevertheless, in 20 to 30 years, they will break down. And even though I um, would also point out, you know, especially with um, some rental situations of other uh, larger um, uh, apartment complexes, as time goes by, when they're not taken care of by the um, proprietors um they're they've had to come together and uh put pressure on them to uh do their work so these are things um that it i can't tell you what to do but i'm bringing up a real concern that will come to you as it does to us every year to replace roads and um take care of parking and curbs and gutters um and um i will not like to see um, the city have to take responsibility for a road that is currently private. Any other comments? Any motions? I move that we approve the revised final development plan, FDP 22-00119 for the Jayhawk Club, lot three located at 1610 Birdie Way, subject to the conditions listed in the staff report. Second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 That passes five to zero. I want to check on my other commissioners that they don't need a break at this time since the next few items are somewhat together. Thank you very much. I'm sorry. So we keep going. Keep going. All right, forge ahead. Uh, that brings us to thank you, uh, staff, and thank you, Mr. Warner, for being here. Um, that brings us to Item number three, uh, consider approving a request to annex. Good evening, commissioners. I'm Mary Meller, one of the city county planners, and I will share my screen. And as you noted, there are quite a few items in this together. We have the annexation of about 61 acres, and then there are three rezoning requests that make up the uh, property within the annexation. Oops, get that better. The subject property is located just south of Interstate 70, and it's on the north part of uh, Lawrence. The blue areas in this graphic are areas that are within the city limits, and the area outlined in green is the subject property. So it is bounded on three sides by property within the city limits. So with every annexation, it's necessary to request rezoning to a appropriate urban zoning district. So this uh, was provided in the staff report and it shows that they're proposing a school use in the Northwest corner. And so eight acres are being proposed for rezoning to the GPI or general public and institutional use district. 
About 12.2 acres in the southwest corner are being recommended or suggested for open space protection. And so a rezoning to the open space district has been submitted for that parcel. And then the remainder, a little over 40 acres, would be rezoned to the RS5 district. So one of the crucial things we look at when we look at annexations is our city services available to serve the property. So the subject property is outlined here in bold, and we see the city utilities. Uh, the yellow are the sanitary sewer lines and the blue are water lines. So with the adjacent neighborhoods, these water lines and sewer lines have been brought to the edge of the subject property. So it would be the developer's responsibility to extend those into and through his property. There are streets that butt up to the subject property. There is um, Hillsong Circle and Blazing Star. These are um, local streets. And then there's Hunter's Hill, which is a collector street, which would cut through on the bottom side of the property. So this would actually improve the um, coordination of the circulation of the area. And these extended streets and utilities would occur when the property is platted. Uh, with the final plat, you're required to do public improvement plans showing how the utilities and the streets would be constructed. And also you have provide the means of assurance of completion, which could be a letter of credit, funds in escrow, uh, benefit districts, but something to show that you're, you have the means to complete those improvements. And that way we're ensuring that when this is platted, it is possible for them to be served with utilities and streets. The fire marshal noted that the development would be able to provide, the department would be able to provide coverage to this property. And um, city services are immediately available to serve the property and would be extended by the developer. Another thing we look at is, is the, um, annexation supported by the comprehensive plan. So this graphic shows the different tiers in um, our urban growth area. We have tier one, which is land within the city limits. Tier two, the green area, is land that's required to annex prior to development. And then tier three, which is north of Interstate 70, is land that's not expected to annex during the lifespan of the comprehensive plan. <clears throat> the plan also notes that proposed annexations shall be considered when they, when they are in the best interest of Douglas County and Lawrence residents. And the plan notes in action item 2.2, the city may at its discretion annex tier two land. When addressing the annexation of tier two land, the city shall consider factors such as, but not limited to, community land use inventories, market sector help, residential valuation to income ratio, and the community benefit provided. <clears throat> the city's community land use um, inventory, the residential lot inventory report, shows a critical need for additional single-family lots. The current inventory indicates that residential lots available in newer subdivisions represent two years of inventory. Making property ready for single-family development is, uh, can be a time-consuming process with annexation, rezoning, public improvement plans, platting with the preliminary and a final plat, and then building permits, it can take a year or more. So given the time needed to make property ready for development, staff recommends taking staff 
steps to increase the inventory of single family residential lots in order to keep up with the housing demand, which includes the annexation of property when appropriate. <clears throat> the data currently reflects in staff's analysis a need to support the development of additional single family lots. And then we look at community benefit. Um, one of their options or one of their projects is to provide about eight acres for a public school. And that would be a community benefit. Uh, the Perry LeCompton School District is interested in locating a elementary school in this location. At the planning commission meeting, the applicant mentioned they are considering adding some permanently affordable housing. I think at the meeting they mentioned they may be willing to put in three units and, um, and that would be another community benefit. The preservation of environmentally sensitive lands is a benefit and with the rezoning to the OS district, uh, that is additional protection. Um, there are other protection measures required in RS districts, uh, but zoning to the OS district is a very limited use district, so that would be a, a means of protection. And then we address the goals of the City Commission strategic plan, and one of these is to review and improve subdivision regulations and encourage larger developments to foster greater economies of scale. And this annexation rezoning request would result in a larger development and would foster greater economies of scale. The extension of a sanitary sewer main to serve one new lot in an infill situation is often cost prohibitive, but with a neighborhood to serve, the cost is more easily absorbed into the project. This annexation would provide the following community benefits. It would provide land for a public benefit, an elementary school. It would provide additional protection for environmentally sensitive lands, and it would comply with the city's strategic plan recommendation for larger developments and the resulting economies of scale. And it's possible that it would also provide for affordable housing. The comprehensive plan also Notes, we require development contiguous to city limits to annex and develop to urban standards when city services are reasonably available. And as shown on that graphic earlier, the property is adjacent to city limits on three sides. Another factor we consider is, is the annexation compliant with the recommendations in the area plan? And this property is part of the K-10 Farmers Turnpike Long Range Plan, which recommends a low density residential for this area. And when they recommend the uses, they recommend um, RS-10, RS-7, and RS-5 zoning districts, or RM-12 for duplexes. Um, and they also recommend the detached dwellings, attached dwellings, group homes, and public and civic uses as primary uses. So the RS-5 district is the densest district that is uh, recommended in this area. And the public and civic uses, um, that would be the elementary school. So the proposed zoning and land uses would be compliant with the recommendations in the area plan. The Planning Commission voted five to one at their April 27th meeting to forward this annexation request to the City Commission with a recommendation for approval. This graphic shows the three rezonings that are being requested and we'll start with the OS or the Open Space District. Uh, the proposal is to rezone about 12.2 acres to open space. And this graphic, you can see the dashed area is where this is located. The Kansas Biological Survey noted <clears throat> that this property would have been forested prior to European settlement, and it has been continuously maintained in forests for about the last 100 years. They noted that something had negatively impacted its condition, so 
they would classify it as native forest with restoration potential. As far as looking at the current zoning and land uses in the area, and I'll just use this graphic basically for all the rezonings um, rather than discussing them all, but the property is zoned CP for clustered preservation, which is the rural residential district. Um, there is CP zoning to the west and the south of the overall project. And then we have a mix of urban and rural zoning districts in the area. And we also have a mix of uses. The bottom right graphic shows that the pink area, that's agricultural. Uh, the yellow is single family residential. And then the gray is what the appraiser's office considers vacant. Not of some use at this time. Uh, the OS zoning, as I mentioned, is a limited use district that would be compatible with the existing and future development of the site. With zonings, we always look at the impact on the character of the area. And this area is character characterized by uh, woodlands, agricultural land, and then residential development. We have the urban neighborhoods, and then you'll see we have scattered rural residential as well. So evaluating the impact on the character, we'd want to evaluate the impact it would have on the woodlands, whether it would remove significant areas of agricultural production, and whether it would be compatible with the existing and proposed residential neighborhoods. The proposed OS zoning would maintain the character of the area as the zoning is being requested as a means of protecting the woodland. Then we have a set of other review criteria. Um, one is a compliance with the comprehensive plan. And uh, the comprehensive plan recommends that open space be located near subdivisions to provide recreational opportunities and to create an aesthetically pleasing environment. Um, where this open space is being proposed, it would be south of an elementary school and to the west of a proposed new residential development. So it would be a ple aesthetically pleasing feature for the area. It's not known at this time if it would be used for any recreational purposes, uh, but that would be determined later. And the comprehensive plan identifies native woodlands as an environmentally sensitive land. And so, as I mentioned, the OS district has a very limited range of uses. However, staff would recommend the standard mature trees or native woodland would be placed in a tract or easement with the platting of the property to ensure protection of this feature. Uh, if we look at the um, compliance with the area plan, we've already noted that the area plan recommends low density residential, but the plan also notes that environmentally sensitive lands should be protected as outlined in the land development code and that where possible protected with location within designated public or private open space. So rezoning is compliant with the area plan. Then we look at the suitability of the land and uses to which it's restricted under the current zoning. Currently it is zoned CP, it's a landlocked parcel, so it's not able to develop. Um, there is a, the only uses that would be available to it now under its current zoning would be agricultural or nature preserved. And so uh, the property is well suited to the OS district and the future plans to maintain the woodland as protected green space. Rezoning to the OS district should have no detrimental impacts on nearby properties. And as we mentioned, to ensure it remains undeveloped, um, the property, the woodlands that's to be protected should be platted as a tract or easement. And we did not identify any gains to the public that would occur as a result of denial of the rezoning request. And the Planning Commission voted five to one to forward this rezoning application to the City Commission for approval. 
um, subject to the condition that the woodland be placed in a tract or easement when platted. And this way we're identifying the woodlands that would be protected. Then we'll move on to the GPI zoning. Uh, this would be for the elementary school and GPI is general public and institutional use. Um, this is just a reminder of the land uses and zonings in the area. Again, the character of the area, rezoning and, and putting a school in this area would uh, impact the character of the area in that urban uses would be expanded outward, but it would be compatible with other residential uses in the area. With proper site design, which would be achieved at the site planning process, the proposed school use should be compatible with the surrounding land uses. So again, we look at plan 2040, the recommendations, and they have locational criteria when siting a community facility. And one of them is to consider infill opportunities and reuse options for new community facilities. However, as this school is to uh, accommodate students in the Lawrence or the Compton Perry School District, they currently have elementary schools in the Compton and in Perry, and they have a high school in the city of Perry. But this is intended to serve the students, the rural students in this area, and all, as well as the students that are within the city limits of Lawrence. And so infill in the cities of Lecompton or Perry would not be possible for this use. And locating a school within a neighborhood requires an assessment of anticipated traffic on the traffic routes through the area. And the applicant noted that they are willing to construct a planned local road, which would provide access to the school to collect your street standards if necessary to accommodate the traffic. So it would be a wider street than a local street. And the design of the street would be determined with the traffic impact studies provided with the plat and the site plan. A lot would depend upon the size of the school and how many students would be bused and other factors. And then we look at the area plan. Um, as we saw, it's, this is within the K-10 and Farmers Turnpike Plan, and one of the uses that's recommended for this area is public and civic uses. And then we look at the suitability of the land. Again, this is a landlocked property that is not um, eligible for a building permit today. If it were to develop, it would require annexation into the City of Lawrence, based on the recommendations in the um, comprehensive plan. The property would be well suited to uses permitted in the GPI district with the public improvements that would be installed as part of the platting and site planning process. No detrimental impacts are expected. In, impacts from the anticipated school traffic would need to be evaluated with the traffic impact study and street improvements or additional access points may be required to accommodate the school. We did not ident identify any benefits from that would be occurred to the public by the denial of the request. However, the approval of the rezoning would provide a location for the Perry Lecompton School District to install an elementary school in closer proximity to many of the rural students and students within the city of Lawrence. And so again, the Planning Commission voted five to one to forward this rezoning to the City Commission with a recommendation for approval. And this takes us to the RS5 zoning district shown here in yellow, the proposal. That's approximately 40.8 acres. It's currently zoned CP, which is the rural residential district. It's bounded on the west by CP zoning. 
similar to the other graphics we've seen. It shows the character of the area. It is immediately adjacent to other residential neighborhoods. And as the land is not in agricultural production and is currently zoned for residential uses, the rezoning and proposed development would not remove land from agricultural production. The proposed residential development would be similar to and compatible with the existing residential neighborhoods and access into the new residential subdivision would be taken from city streets to the east and south and would not impact the county township roads in the area. Reviewing the rezoning request with the comprehensive plan, goal three on page 26 um, recommends we ensure an efficient and planned coordination of infrastructure to prepare the area for annexation and development. And as shown with the annexation discussion, infrastructure in the form of streets and city utilities have been extended with previous developments to the, this property's border. Extending the infrastructure with this development will result in an efficient and planned coordination of infrastructure to further prepare other areas of tier two for annexation and development when appropriate. Goal four is to identify suitable lands to accommodate residential growth, facilitating orderly planned development. And as this land is adjacent to city limits on, all, on three sides with residential development on two sides and infrastructure is immediately available to serve the property, the subject property is suitable to accommodate orderly planned development. And goal five is as tier two develops, maintain an active and productive agricultural community. However, as we've mentioned, none of the um, property is currently being used for agriculture. The proposed request is consistent with the provisions contained in Chapter 3 of Plan 2040 regarding growth in Tier 2 of the urban growth area and specific recommendations for residential land uses. We've looked at the K-10 and Farmers Turnpike Plan, and it does recommend low-density residential, with RS-5 being the highest density. Of the differences are RS-7 would have 7,000 square feet, RS-5 would have a minimum possible area of 5,000 square feet. The proposed zoning is compliant with the recommendations in the area plan. And the same issue with suitability, there is no road frontage. The property is currently not eligible for a building permit. Um, in order to develop the property, it would be necessary to divide through a plat or certificate of survey. However, the comprehensive plan requires land within tier two to annex prior to development. So the land in its current state is not eligible for development and is not suitable for uses in the CP district. The undeveloped property is well suited to single dwelling residential homes, given the availability of city services. Annexing and rezoning to the RS5 district would ensure the property would develop at a similar, somewhat higher density than the adjacent developed areas. Uh, we did not identify any detrimental impacts that would occur from this rezoning being approved. Uh, the gain to the public by denial, we did not identify any. With that, there could be some benefits from the approval of the rezoning request looking at the um, economies of scale, which could result in lower housing prices. And also the applicant had indicated they would work with tenants to homeowners to develop some permanently affordable housing, which would be another benefit. Oops. And the Planning Commission also voted five to one at their meeting on April 27th to forward this rezoning request to the City Commission with a recommendation for approval. So I will stop sharing my screen. And I'll be happy to answer questions if you have any for me. 
Thank you, Mary. Questions? Um, yes. Uh, uh, thank you, Mary, again, for that presentation. And I know you were talking about the affordable housing component of it. Um, could you go into a little bit further detail of how many units uh, that have been agreed to so far and out of how many units proposed being built in that uh, 41 acre lot? Uh, well, the, uh, the concept plan shows a number of units. However, that's primarily to show that it's possible to develop. You know, once they do the actual engineering, they may be able to develop less or more. So I don't recall the total number off the top of my head. I'd have to look that up. But um, they were discussing perhaps three permanently affordable housing units that they would be willing to install. Okay. And uh, I... And also, I just had a further question on that. I had an opportunity to see that meeting, and Rebecca had stated that uh, she she alluded that there might be an opportunity for more, um, considering that the, the uh, developer was providing those at cost. Uh, I, I didn't hear it, anything necessarily from the developer, but was that uh, is that on both sides there? Um, I think that question would have to be for the applicant. I, I think Tenista homeowners is willing to, to work with them if they're able to purchase some of the land and, and do some of their projects, but the applicant could probably explain that better. And that would be David Hamby speaking here for the applicant. David Hamby, BG Consultants. Hold, hold on, I think we might we might have a little bit okay. of legal business here. Hold on one second. Okay. <laughs> the um, item, the agenda item on this does indicate that you all will need to disclose expert. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Mayor Shipley, I I have no ex parte communications on this. Commissioner Larson, neither do I. Commissioner Littlejohn, neither do I. Commissioner Sellers, no. Commissioner Commissioner Fingal, Commissioner Fingal I know ex parte. Actually, I need to correct that statement. Oh. I just remembered I had a conversation with Michael Allman about it this yesterday. Okay. And we just discussed the zoning and the zoning as well as the density um, concerns. Great. Thank you, Randy. I hope that's enough for you. Uh, thank you, Sherry. Um, Mr. Hamby, go ahead. David Hamby, BG Consultants. Uh, I would just want to thank staff for their work on this, and I'm looking forward to uh, moving it on ahead. So that said, I won't go into a whole lot of the details on this. I do have the uh, developer of the property on the on the call here, as well as I believe um, tennis to homeowners and some of their supporters, as well as the Perry LeCompton School District. But uh, just a couple couple quick items as mary mentioned this is this is a site that's ready for development uh all the uh, utilities are there and uh, the community benefit we, we've mentioned that before and three affordable housing lots um i'd say with the possibility for more again that's up to the developer and i don't know that he's fully talked uh, with rebecca about that to this date but uh, he's committed to three on that um, at this time. And this would just noting, this is the first time a developer has provided affordable housing lots in any type of development. So I wanted to just recognize the developer for that. Uh, and, and just a, a quick note, I know on Mary's um, diagram showing the streets, Hunter's Hill is a collector road. And at that time, there's no plan to connect that to the county roads. So all access would be to the internal uh, to the internal lots would be by the three city streets that stub out to this. So I know there's been some concerns about traffic 
um, on the county roads, but this at this time won't be connected. And that's the connection point and all those details would need to be worked out, you know, part of the uh, area plan when that's re-looked at as well. So uh, with that, I'd be happy to answer any questions or if um, you would like to hear from tennis to homeowners or the developer, uh, that's an option too. Thank you, Mr. Hamby. I think that was a response to a question from yeah, if it's John. possible, if the developer could hop on and, uh, you know, talk a little bit about it, that would be great. Or tenants, uh, that would be great as well. And I do want to add that I do appreciate the um, the willingness and the flexibility that the developer is providing to for that permanently affordable housing. So, uh, Good evening, Adam Williams, Williams Management. Um, you know, we're, we're all new to this concept of affordable housing lots. Um, it's, it's a new concept for all of us. At this time, we're willing to do the three units at cost. Um, again, we haven't done the, the final platting, so we don't know exactly what the costs are going to be of this project. So um, we feel comfortable that three is attainable for us. And, and at this time, that's, that's where we want to land uh, going forward until we know more. Mr. Williams, this is Commissioner Sellers. I just wanted to make sure I heard you clear. You had in your comments right now, you said units, but I was, and then in the presentation, it was lots. So I just want to make sure it's three units or lots, or are we just using units and lots interchangeably right now? I, I was, it, it's lots, you're correct. Thank you. And again, I hadn't heard the specific number. I believe you asked that as well. A guess. Give me a guess. You're a, a total. Yeah. Developable. Uh, developable. Oh, the developable. Line. Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. Three out David of. BG consultants. It's approximately about 200. Mm. This is, as you can see on this, it's a, a pretty tough area to develop uh, some, some steeper slopes and some rocky areas. So we'll do our best to, to get that density up as high as we can. Thank you. Um, okay. Well, any other questions? Yeah, but I have a question. Um, this is for staff. So if this goes through and gets approved for zoning, um, does the site plan come back to us at any point in time? For approval based um, on, well, I guess any aspect of it, but uh, as we've been discussing this affordable housing part of it um, as meeting the community benefit, um, do we get to uh, look at that um, once they decide on the exact number and where they're going to be at? Does the commission get to vote on that or have, have a say in that? Well, as far as as far as what comes back to you, um, you would be getting the uh, preliminary. No, you'd be getting the site plan for the school when they decide to move forward. Otherwise, the preliminary plat will go to the planning commission, and then the final plat is done administratively. But if you're asking if you can approve the zoning contingent upon being satisfied with the affordable housing, I don't know that answer. But it looks like maybe our Randy Larkin does. This is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. Um, I do want to point out under state law, uh, we are not permitted to uh, grant zoning or an annexation 
upon the provision of a certain number or any number of affordable lots. That's something outside our purview. We either grant the rezoning or don't grant rezoning. The owner of the property can then agree to do affordable lots if, if they do that on their own voluntarily, but we cannot require that of any of any applicant for rezoning, annexation, or land use uh, permission. Thank you, Randy. The, Were you done? No, go ahead. Thank you. Oh, it's Commissioner Sellers. Um, I just wanted to ask with the for the developer, is there, do you see in the future that you plan to come to us um, requesting any type of economic development incentive for this um, for this development project? Uh, Adam Williams, Williams Management. No, we do not. The, the affordable housing piece is something that we we worked with the city in the past on other projects that have been successful with that. Um, we feel like this one can be also successful um, and stand on its own. So um, to answer your question is uh, no, we do not. Uh, go ahead. So I just want to make sure I understand this. So they could, this Sony can go through. They said that one of the community benefits is affordable housing. And technically they could provide one lot and that would be fulfill that requirement of community good. Is that correct? This is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. Uh, again, we cannot require affordable housing as part of a uh, land approval. Now, if they were, as, as Commissioner Sellers noted, or if she, she kind of alluded to, had, if they were seeking incentives, or if the city was contributing something to us, then we can make that requirement under state law and also under our, our economic development policies. But currently, as, as the Kansas state law is written, it really can't play into a part into your decision in, in whether or not to, to allow the annexation or to grant any rezoning in this case. That's something that the landowner, the developer can do voluntarily, but we cannot require it. And really it should be beyond our purview. Commissioner Finkel, I'm, am I understanding though that, I mean, there's, as I understood the presentation, there's four community benefits. One is just the residential lots. Two is the school zoning. Three is the open space zoning and four is the offer of some affordable housing. So even if they had no affordable housing, they still have three other very large, um, you know, to me, community benefits, any of one of which would stand on its own, in my opinion. Though I like the affordable housing and I appreciate the three, Adam. I guess I'm just trying to understand what this community benefit really means, because this is, I think, one of the first ones we've seen where it's offering community benefit, I think. Um, and, and so I'm just want to make sure I understand what does that actually mean and, and what's the follow through, but that's where I'm coming from on that. Um, and just for my part, it was, uh, I just wanted a little bit of clarification on that. Thank you uh, to uh, Mr. Williams uh, providing that. Um, and I want to reiterate that I do appreciate because it is a whole lot better than no affordable housing. Um, the, <laughs> and the willingness to be flexible to provide that and work with tenants to homeowners on that. Uh, we're still on questions. 
Um, any, any, you got some? Okay, I'll waste some time for you. Hold on, hold on. I want to talk, if I may, about um, the road that you indicated on page six, figure seven, and you made some comments. I'm going to start with Mary. Um, um, the OS zoning would not be subject to um, environmental study if it was residential, um, but I'm seeing here, at least provisionally, that we would run a road straight through that OS area, although interestingly, not in a space that appears to be a road already. Does somebody want to talk to me about that? I'm Mary Miller, planner. Uh, I wanted to point out in the staff report that we only require environmentally sensitive lands to be protected in residential zoning districts. Mm -hmm. However, this could be included in the residential zoning district, and then they could have just put it into a tract for an easement, but they wanted to zone it specifically to open space. And then our suggestion was, and then go ahead and put what you're protecting into a platter easement so we don't have the roadway counting as your protected environmentally sensitive lands. So, this will count toward the environmentally sensitive lands in the residential area, since we're doing it with that understanding. They have to make up 20% of the total site area is the maximum we can require. So we would have to calculate how much the site is. There may need to be additional environmentally sensitive lands on the residential portion that is also protected. But so this is one way, you're right. If they just owned it OS, we wouldn't have a code requirement for them to protect environmentally sensitive plans. They may agree to do it anyway, just as they are now. But the code requires it only in residentially zoned properties. Um, thank you, Mary. Not 100% sure that I am catching up with the logistics of what will happen in reality when you need to build a road. Can can you, you've drawn a little dotted line here and then later in the, in the OS, uh, the way they show it parceled out, um, they still need, theoretically, we still want to access that neighborhood from both sides, regardless of the green space. I'm, I'm trying to understand, are you saying if they had to put the road where you have this gold dotted line, they would have to replace 20% of trees somewhere? Just anywhere? Well, the platting and the, and the tract, putting it into a tractor and easement will happen at the platting stage. So at that time, we'll have the information. The engineers will be looking at it, and they will say, well, here's where the road's going to go. And we would not count the area that would be within the road right-of-way as protected tree area, because anything can happen in the right-of-way. So I see what you're saying, yes. You, you may not have as much trees as you think you're going to have once they put the road right-of-way in. But then the remainder would be made up on that residential property. Well, if I may add, I'm go sorry. ahead, uh, David Hamby, BG consultants. So you see a corridor in there that's been cleared. Uh, that's actually a high pressure gas line that runs right through the middle of the property. And Thank so it you. has about a hundred foot wide easement in there. Uh, and back to the road itself. Right now we have that because everything beyond to the, to the West and South is privately owned. Um, and, and I think Mary's diagram just referred to uh, a previous plan that was done just showing a line of where 
potential collector street could run. Uh, we actually have that stubbed out and heading south right before it gets to the OS district. And so that the plan is not to have a road running through there. It's a, set it to the south. But again, all of that is private property. And so until any of that other area develops, it's where the city goes in and, and designates a project. It's hard to, to set that alignment today. Um, Mayor Shipley, then you don't know where that road's going to access and, and we're okay with that, Mary? I'm Mary Miller, planner. Yes, the dotted, the dashed lines indicate that that's a proposed alignment that hasn't had the engineering work done. It's where kind of the best thought when the long range plans went through the transportation planners. So they wanted in that general area, they aren't tied specifically to that exact location. It could be moved one way or the other, but they do want it to go from the east to the west and connect those properties. So it could go further north or further south. Uh, but again, as he indicated, some of that is private property we have no control of. Uh, all the roads that we have, all our future roads, when we extend them, they're shown on private property because we don't have any right of way yet. So and that's one of the reasons that there's a little bit of flexibility when you see the dash lines. You know, it, it depends on us getting the right of way and then finding out that that is the appropriate right of way. Thank you both. Did I spend enough time for you, Commissioner? You did. You, you actually touched on one aspect of the question I had, so I'm glad that you went first. Um, for the land that's rezoning from a cluster to the open space in the um, staff report that says that the open space provides for that recreational opportunity in the aesthetic pleasing environment. And I know that in the presentation, Mary, you discussed, you know, just the, the age and aspect of that area. So I, and I can't, I can't remember, I can't recall if you said in the presentation, would that open space be left as is? Is the developer plan to leave it as is, or is there discussion of creating some type of recreation piece on the open space part? Or is it just the recreation and aesthetic piece is just the fact that it will be left alone? That was the part I in, in your presentation that I got a little turned around on. Right. I think the developer could give you a good idea of his um, plans. It's just that it would, without question, provide an aesthetically pleasing viewpoint, whether or not they intend to install trails like along right. between the trees, you know, that would be up to him to decide. And I don't think he's got that far in his plans yet. Okay. Adam, do you want to add to that? Uh, Adam Williams, Williams Management. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of pieces that go into this project. One is talking to my existing neighbors in that area. And, you know, when they when they bought their homes, they, they liked the fact that that land was set aside for environmental sensitive area at the time. And planning is also recommended that we set that aside for, for something like that. And our plan is to follow the planning commission's advice and place an easement on that property where it is maintained exactly as it is today with with no development. That way we protect we protect as many people in that neighborhood that 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 have been there a long time so that that is our plan today thank you any other questions 
Um, Mary, you did mention, so I'll be clear that I, I appreciate that I bring up something you mentioned. Um, they're asking for RS5 here. How do we reconcile our consistent desire for higher density with um, neighborhoods that are previously developed? So they're asking for RS5. Why not RS7? You did you did mention, but I wondered if you could tease it out a little bit better for the public for me. Sure, Mary Meller Planner. RS5 is a higher density than RS7. The RS7 district, you can have a minimum of 7,000 square feet lots, but in RS5, you can go down to 5,000 square feet lots. And so RS5 is the most dense single family district that's recommended in that area plan. So to go to a higher density, for instance, RS3, the really small 3,000 square foot lots, um, that would take a revision to the plan. You could go to duplexes. That would be somewhat higher density, and I'm not sure if it's higher than the RS5. I'd have to look up and see. I thought it are but that would be one route if they wanted to increase their densities to put an area of duplexes in there. But they are right now operating at the highest level of density for single dwellings that's permitted in the area plan. For single dwellings? Yes. Just one moment, I'll look up in my density table and see what a duplex would take. Yeah, RM12D, you can have a, up to 12 dwelling units an acre, which would be, it would be more dense than the RS5, because RS5, you probably get less than that. So if they wanted to be more dense, they could go with duplex development. Thank you, Mary. Mm -hmm. I hate to go into this, but I'm sure I'm not the only one who wants to be sure. And I appreciate that um, the other school district is here, although I can't see them. Um, um, help the public understand how it benefits them to build a school in Lawrence for another school district. Hi, this is uh, J.B. Elliott, uh, Perry LeCompton, superintendent. Let's see if I can answer that for you. Uh, as far as benefit for uh, another school district, I think you have to realize now that, that we already have uh, students with Lawrence addresses in our district. Uh, for example, the Lynx apartment, which is uh, probably just over 700 units there, <clears throat> is actually in the Perry LeCompton school district. So we already serve students there. So as far as a benefit for us to do that, as far as looking at that school, as uh, you continue to get development uh, within that area, the Northwest Lawrence going closer to LeCompton or going a little bit further west into our district, it means less travel time for students. Uh, anytime you can cut down travel time, that means it's a safety issue for us if we can keep students off that. And, and again, I'll point out, you know, building that school, uh, it, it, there's a couple of things involved in that. One is going to be 
you, you need students, obviously, uh, to justify building a new school building. You also need you need those homes filled up with voters in order to pass a bond issue. You know, bond issues is what enables school districts uh, to build there. So I hope that answers your question. If not, um, I'll rephrase it a little bit. Um, I, I hate to ask Commissioner Finkeldye, but um, <laughs> unfortunately, he's generally who I ask questions like this to. Is that even in the voting district that would vote for something like that? Help me, help me with my voting districts. No, if, if Commissioner Finkeldye, if you're in the Perry LeCompton School District, you vote for Perry LeCompton bonds. So if you live there, and um, but the, the entire district has to vote for the bond issue. So yeah, they they. Any resident of the of the Perry LeCompton School District would be able to vote for that, so it'd have to pass. Um, and frankly, probably um, Superintendent Elliott's question is: Does somebody who lives in LeCompton would it benefit them to pass a bond issue to build a school in Lawrence? That's a different political question than the one we're asking. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean it, that that's the point of trying to ask the entire district if if that's a a place and a bond they want to support. So it probably goes both ways. The question I'm more interested in, but I'm not going to ask Superintendent Elliott to answer is what open enrollment might do to districts mm -hmm. like his and other districts if it lasts into the next year. But you really don't have to answer that. That's just more of a rhetorical question. <laughs> if, if the legislature keeps that intact going forward, I think it will be a big issue for lots of school districts in lots of different ways. Um, I have got one more and then I'll check with my commissioners again. Um, one thing uh, we've talked about in, in the past or a lot of people talk about is staving off food deserts. So let's say we do manage to uh, put this uh, many units or lots. Um, you have space for um, a potential school and a potentially other school district, but um, is almost definitely outside the food desert area. Is any consideration ever given? I understand the different market uh, pressures uh, that make um, big box stores or grocery stores available or not available, but I, I do want to bring it up because uh, we don't want to create food deserts if we have an option not to. David and BG consultants. So uh, there, there's kind of a bigger question. You know, right now the comprehensive plan doesn't support any type of commercial zoning in this area. And so that would have to involve a comprehensive plan amendment to change the plan to, to do that. Um, you know, and if that happens, that's something I, I think the developer would, would entertain. But, you know, right now the, the comprehensive plan doesn't support that. Mary. Um, yes, I think CN2, that's one of the neighborhood commercial centers that allows grocery stores, but then it has specific criteria to look at. So if uh, we were going to put a grocery store there, we'd want to make sure we had an adequate, usually it's at the intersection of an arterial and a major collector. You know, we want high, high classification roads just to handle all the traffic that you would get with a grocery store. You know, a smaller grocery store, like a convenience store just for the neighborhood. And a lot of times you'll see rezonings when you have a project come through 
someone identifies a corner that they'd like to put a convenience store at, and then you'll see a rezoning to CN1, you know, just for something for the that neighborhood itself, or CN2, something a little larger. That I don't think at the moment, with the the degree of the, I don't know what the words are, but uh, I don't think that commercial has been identified as a good use for this land up at this extremity. It may want to be down closer where it's surrounded by houses rather than having I-70 just to the north, you know, so you have a more circular pattern to draw from. But it would be possible at some point, like David said, it may require some amendments. The long-range plan would need to be amended because it does not recommend commercial uses in this area. So there would be some changes that we would have to do if we wanted to be able to approve uh, commercial or recommend approval of commercial zoning here. Thank you, Mary. Um, I I don't know if Jeff's about, but I I, I thought food deserts and and um, access to food was part of the comprehensive plan. Although I can't immediately recall what. Um, Well, it would be, it would be one of the goals of the comprehensive plan. And, you know, there's a lot of different steps. So that may be one argument a person could use if they're attempting to revise the area plan, which is going to be revised. I think it's on the slate for next year to get that one updated, uh, to revise that and to identify areas that might be appropriate. Uh, as I said, I don't know that we would find something at this extremity of the city limits so close to I-70 is really being appropriate for a large, a larger grocery store. But, um, Thank you, Mary. Thank yeah. you. I see Becky kind of popped on. Maybe she's got a, a comment here. Yeah, Becky Pepper, planning manager. I uh, don't have anything. Uh, Mary said it uh, very well. Um, I think the um, uh, the reference here is that the uh, future land uses identified in this area don't call for commercial. So while the um, uh, uh, comprehensive plan in general may talk about food deserts in this area specifically, it's not identified as um, uh, a, a specific future land use and so would need to be amended um, to um, accommodate that use in the future. Thank you, Becky. Any other questions? Nope. Are you good? You're good. Okay. All right. Um, I do want to make sure we, we do have a number of guests and I don't want to uh, cut them out. Um, uh, the representative for the school or, or Mr. Hamby or anyone else has some uh, a few minutes of comments that we didn't ask them. I do want to give them a little space. Mr. Williams, if there's anything you haven't already told us, I want to give you space. Okay, well, we'll go to public comment then. Is there anyone in the room who has public comment on this item? So I saw the um, preliminary plan for the residential zoning area, uh, and I was wondering if that the uh, conceptual diagram for the houses is set in, is set in stone, um, because it seems like there would be a way to save a few more trees if they kind of shifted the uh, big open space in the middle of the houses to the top and put the, uh, I was just wondering if that conceptual diagram is set in stone. <laughs> Is that your only question? Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll address it here in a second. Thank you. Any other future public comment? 
Good evening, my name is Michael Allman. The Sustainability Action Network requests that you deny this annexation as exclusively a single dwelling development and send it back to the Planning Commission to consider it be developed as a mixed use, multi-dwelling zoned neighborhood. We encourage the commission to view this annexation through the lens of what's called missing middle housing, more affordable units generally defined as duplexes, triplexes, quadplexes, cottage clusters, and townhouses. If our community is to scale up the options for affordability, we'll need to emphasize multi-dwelling zoning in all new land development, not just catches, catch can, random affordable units. As admirable as it is for the Affordable Housing Advisory Board or tenants to homeowners to cajole developers into building maybe one or 2% of units as affordable, that isn't a viable as a strategy or a policy. For dozens of communities in some states as well, single dwelling density is now an anachronism. The Lawrence Home, Bu Home Builders Association and prominent developers continue to portray our community's housing crisis as a shortage of building lots for single dwelling homes, whereas it really is a shortage of affordable units as well as available land. Consider this markedly different view from the National Association of Home Builders. The NAHB recently released a port diversifying housing options with smaller lots and smaller homes that details these missing middle housing types and how the lack of it has exacerbated housing shortages and acted as a barrier to housing affordability. One of the supposed community benefits that planning staff attributes to the annexation request is that the development will be a strong and welcoming neighborhood. First of all, that's not, quote, above and beyond that required to serve the development as Plan 2040 requires, but merely meeting expectations. Secondly, the term strong may apply, but welcoming certainly does not. The development may not be gated community, but the vast majority of low moderate folks will be excluded by the single dwelling price points. Rejecting the single dwelling zoning format for this annexation would provide multiple gains. The number of affordable units would increase significantly. More units per acre would use our scarce land more efficiently. Housing more densely concentrated would leave more open space. More compact neighborhoods are more walkable and bikeable and enable transit use. And because electricity use for water and sewer increases exponentially per linear foot as far as it's extended, um, greater density translates to greater reduction of energy, energy use, climate emissions, and utility operational expenditures for the city of Lawrence. So once again, please deny I, this annexation request, send it to the Planning Commission to consider as a multi-dwelling mixed-use project. Thank you. thank you. Is there anyone else in the room? Is there anyone online who wants to make uh, public comment on this item. There's no additional comments, Mayor. <clears throat> okay, let's bring it back to the commission. Did we lose Rebecca, Lieutenant to homeowners? I can't see her where I'm at. Um. Adam Williams, Williams Management. I, I reached out to Rebecca today and um, she sent me a text back that said, I'm on vacation, Adam, so I will not be able to join. 
but please share that we are in support and we'll be there, but we're on a holiday. So um, she is not with us tonight, according to her text. Well, well thank you, Adam. Thank you. Commissioner Finkelai, I can start. Um, so a couple different thoughts I had. I mean, this is one of our first um, you know, chances you know, for an annexation with community benefit. And, you know, there's been lots of talks about community benefit over, over the years, but as I mentioned earlier, I mean, this one kind of hits it out of the park. I mean, you have at least four community benefits. And I guess I was looking back at Mary's slide, I actually left one off, which is um, we have one open space you know, which is in of itself a community benefit. Two, we have the school, which in and of itself is a community benefit. Three, we have the protection of environmentally sensitive lands, which goes hand in hand with the open space, which I left off. That's a community benefit. And then, you know, um, you know, I know this has been an on and off discussion, but housing, you know, just the provision of housing itself can be a community benefit. And then you have the affordable housing um, um, segment of it. You know, Personally, if it was just housing, I, I, I would find that to be enough of a community benefit. The housing plus affordable housing, great. But you add the schools and you add the open space and the environmentally protected land. I think it, it, it goes far beyond um, anything we'll probably see with future annexation requests. I mean, if, if this is the standard of what we require as a community benefit, um, we're setting the standard uh, much higher than I think even Plan 2040. Um, submit. So um, one, I would say, um, I certainly think it meets that requirement on the baseline, but two, I'd like to thank um, Adam, you know, for this proposal that really checks a lot of those boxes um, and and appreciate that and certainly appreciate the, the willingness of the open space. I know part of that probably has to do with the neighbors, but I appreciate that as well. It, it certainly is an ancillary uh, benefit to us. So you know, on the annexation side, I think it, it hits all the boxes. You know, as a community benefit, I've, you know, we've talked quite a bit about annexation and residential property, um, you know, lots and, and the lack of residential lots to be built on. And, and we've kind of said a couple times, um, you know, to, to the home builders and others, well, bring us something to vote on. I mean, you know, give us some lots to vote on um, give us something to consider, um, and, and this is is that opportunity to, to add new desperately needed residential lots to our um, community. So again, I'm very happy that we have you know one one to vote on. We talk about going south, we talk about going west, um, and we talk about those areas. And we're going to spend if we go those directions. We have lots of infrastructure dollars to spend, um, but here we have infrastructure right there adjacent to another neighborhood and we can get approximately 200 lots um you know without infrastructure dollars without the cip project um i think that's um a big win for us and, and i'm very excited about it so again i'm glad we have this in front of us um you know i also like the rs5 you know i better than the RS7 or, you know, it could have come to us as RS10. It could have come, you know, to us with, with different zoning categories, but it's coming to us as RS5, which is 
the most dense under our current code. You know, I, I do not disagree with, with Mr. Allman that, um, you know, that having more mixed use and more density would be good. You know, currently, though, our, our zoning code doesn't allow for that, um, you know, as a pure zoning based zoning that really allows that mixed use that Mr. Allman's talking about. Again, that's on my on all of our lists, I think, but certainly on my list to be talked about when we talk about um, our, our code and, you know, what does, you know, residential zoning, what do we look like with that going forward? And, um, you know, what will be allowed in, in future districts and how do we encourage mixed use zoning and all the things Michael talked about. But under our current code, um, you can't, you know, to get some of that mixed use duplexes and triplexes, you'd have to rezone this, I guess, to some, you know, multifamily 24 high density and then um, have, you know, single family houses built in a high density zone or whatever. It's um, you know, absent of planned use development, our code doesn't really support that. Um, so RS5 is the most dense single family. We need single family lots, so I'm, I'm in support of this. Um, but, you know, don't disagree that we need to look at that as we look at our zoning go going forward. Um, again, yep, I think that's all I have. So I, I support this. I support all three rezonings, and um, I support the annexation. Uh, I would agree, uh, Commissioner Littlejohn. I would support this project uh, for a lot of the reasons that Brad mentioned, that school, um, the protected open space area, um, the affordable housing, uh, and I really do appreciate the developer working with tenants and homeowners and making that available. Um, and he does provide a good point that uh, it currently, the way our code is situated, uh, doesn't make it very... Uh, accessible and easy, uh, but that's why we're working on developing our code and redeveloping our code. So um, to uh, to Mr. Allman's point, to make sure that we're including uh, mixed use development as a part of our priority. So, um, but uh, the 200 units that we would be adding uh, would be uh, very, very needed for this community. So um, of all the points that Brad mentioned, and uh, um, I did have another that, um, I was able to view the planning uh, board's notes, um, and I one aspect that I caught that was very interesting, and I, I think that we'd mentioned before, I believe the mayor had mentioned before, would be a joint meeting with the school board potentially some da somewhere down the down the road. Um, I think that would be a benefit to us um, just because of the uh, school aspect of it. Um, but uh, I think uh, that uh, that reconnection is needed. So, commissioner. Yeah. So, um, you know, Commissioner Finkelday brought up an excellent point in regards to our code and why we are taking on the monumentous task of doing something that I get to do every day in my life, which is review regulations and to ensure that they um, meet um, best practice and current climate. And so, um, with that being said, you know, it's going to require us when it when we talk about addressing affordable housing in our community, it's not it's not going to be it's not binary. It, it is so multidimensional and it's going to take so many different 
elements, policy elements, as far as our codes, variances, incentives to make this happen. And so, um, you know, I, I looked at this, pro I looked at this proposal as what something is feeding something. And so when you bring in the element of, of a school that can dictate what um, a developer may want to zone something for. Um, when you add the element of affordable housing into it, you know, this is area, this is a, a, a an area that many communities are going to um, trip a little bit about how do you make that happen. And so having having a land trust such as tenants to homeowners in our community um, to work with developers. And I applaud um, Mr. Williams again for wanting to work with uh, Rebecca with tenants to homeowners because it is a land trust that will, um, by securing that those lots, um, he is ensuring, he is partnering with, um, he is partnering to ensure that we have permanent affordable housing in our community. And that's huge. To be able to do that is going to, is huge. Um, and so, you know, the RS5 speaks to the landscape of the area. You have a school there. Um, Commissioner Finkeldye spoke to, you know, whether it's bond issues or, or things that will come to play um, with that area. So I understand why the rezoning for an RS5 um, was put there. I don't know if I fully agree with it because again, we're talking about affordable housing piece and to, to try to balance that. And this is an, uh, this is an awkward dance that's happening right now is how do we balance creating a community or a neighborhood that will be able to support the school that was within the neighborhood while also ensuring that there's equitable access to housing. Now, we don't know what that housing is going to look like, and we don't know what the housing is going to look like for tenants to homeowners, because with those three lots, they're able to do something um, creative with that. It doesn't necessarily, I don't know if that means that they are hamstring to the, the RS5 zoning, um, but they're able to do some, there'll be aspects to it that will be very creative, that will be density on their part. But again, it shouldn't fall on the affordable housing partner to to speak to that density piece. So um, that's just kind of what's going back and forth in my head. Um, I appreciate Randy um, alluding to what I was alluding to was the economic development policy around um, affordable um around affordable housing. And so that's why I wanted Mr. Uh, Williams to clarify the lots and not units, um, because again, tenants to homeowners might be able to create dense units if this is to be passed as an RS5 and what that looks like. And we would be able to see that in the plans later on down the road. Um, <laughs> the mayor brought up um, um, food deserts and, and, and I wanted to speak to food access as a greater piece. Um, oftentimes, you know, we've kind of we've kind of co-opted the food desert term um, to be general broad as to a, a community's act, you know, a neighborhood's access to food, and that was typically food desert was typically was initially used to discuss low-income census tracts access to um, to food to nutritious foods and housing. So I and a grocery store. So I appreciate. Um, the mayor bringing that up um, in a sense of I, I get kind of titchy on 
on turn. So I know that for me, food desert is typically associated with uh, low income communities. Um, but there would be since this would fall past that one mile access, then you would have a food access concern with um, with the community with this zoning development. So. Um, I'm I'm not comfortable with the RS5. I would have liked to see opportunities for for other, but again, I understand why the RS5 exists based on the introduction of a school. Um, but yeah, that's all I have. Well, I, you know, I'm going to support this project. Um, Commissioner Finkelman pointed out several things. One of the, the big ones is that since I've been on the commission, we've been asking for developers to bring us these annexation proposals. And the one that Adam has brought before us, it meets the comprehensive plan just as it's been designed. And in the area plan, the low density residential, um, and I don't want to, uh, as far as Michael Allman, what he's saying about the different the different densities and more density, I think he's right. And that's something that we can address as we go into redoing our development code. But this one meets that low density residential requirement, which is what this area is designed to be based on our comprehensive plan. So um, I would support it for that reason. And I do appreciate the variety of um, community benefits that um, Adam has brought forth. I, I really do. Um, and I, uh, I just think that this, this is uh, what we've been looking for as far as meeting the plans. And so I'm going to support it. Thank you very much, Adam. Any more thoughts? Okay. Um, I, for what it's worth, um, I, I agree in terms of this is what our parameters are at this time. They're, I don't consider two of the things listed as a community benefit uh, by the definition that um, any community member has expected me to um, look for. Um, but as everyone has pointed out, these are the parameters we have right now. And, and indeed, this is why we are trying to revisit our code. So the best I can hope for is that this developer is gonna be far more creative and innovative. Um, maybe than developers in the past have been. Um, we're looking at um, things nationwide that are um, really changing the lives of people and not just post-World War II development, but 15-minute neighborhoods, 20-minute neighborhoods, um, things that are um, good for people's health, not just what it is or isn't a food desert, but um, building neighborhoods that are accessible by public transportation, neighborhoods that are accessible by foot, by bike, um, and less focused on cars. So um, I don't have control over any of that. Uh, what I do have in front of me is a set of rules that have been developed over the years that says, um, this is how we can develop, and this is how we annex. So I will entertain motions. Just doing the one, right? I don't know. Can we do all three? If um, are you talking about all three of the zoning and then? Yeah, Mary presented all three at once. Um, so I, the annexation, the first one. Yeah, yeah. Randy has something. Thank you, Randy. Yeah, uh, this is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. It would be uh, it would be advisable to do each separately. Thank you. I'll start out. Yeah, I would start with the annexation first. 
<laughs> because you have to actually theoretically annex it before you can First resume. Before you can zone it. <laughs> so um, I moved to approve annexing A-22-00050, approximately 61 acres located on three unaddressed parcels to the east of 1760 East 1100 Road, based on the findings listed in the staff report, adopt on first reading ordinance number 9913. I second. I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 That passes five to zero. On to number four. On to... Do I have any motions? I'll approve rezoning Z-22-00051, approximately eight acres from CP cluster preservation to GPI, general public and institutional use district based on the findings presented in the staff report. Adopt on first reading ordinance number 9914. Second. First and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 All those opposed? Nay. That passes four to one. Next. Okay. Uh, approve rezoning Z-22-00052, approximately 12.2 acres from CP to the OS district based on the findings presented in the staff report. Adopt on first reading ordinance number 9915. I second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Um, Nay. That passes four to one. Okay. Last one for this is approved zoning, rezoning Z-22-00053, approximately 40.8 acres located east of 1760 East 1100 Road from CP Cluster Preservation District to RS5 Single Dwelling Residential District based on the findings listed in the staff report. Adopt on first reading ordinance number 9916. I second. I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. I'm opposed. Nay. All right. Thank you, everyone. Does any, yeah, I'm hearing people say break. I apologize to the people at the shelter. No, I'm not apologizing to you. I'm apologizing to the people at the shelter who are waiting for us, uh, but we have been at this for a while. So if we could return at 8.35. Okay. Welcome everyone back to our meeting. We are on our final regular agenda item, which is to receive a presentation from Lawrence Community Shelter. Good evening, Mayor Commissioners. Uh, my name is Danny Walters and I am with the Housing Initiatives Division of Planning and Development Services. And tonight the item before you is the mid-year report from the Lawrence Community Shelter. The purpose of this item is for the commission to receive an update from LCS on their operations and accomplishments over the last four months, as well as receive information on their operational vision moving forward. Staff has been working closely with LCS, as well as aligning our work with the county in this space for the continuum of services in the community available to those experiencing homelessness. If the commission is in agreement, staff requests the approval of the second half of the 2022 LCS general fund allocation that would be distributed to LCS on or after October 1st of 2022. 
A new agreement would be drafted for this amount for the remainder of 2022, and that agreement itself would come back to the City Commission for approval in the early fall. The agreement would be a collaborative effort with the agency, the city, and the county to make sure that we're aligning our goals, outcomes, and expectations. If the city wishes to confirm allocation of the remaining 145,000 to LCS, it should be noted that after that is fully committed, there is a remaining amount of approximately 215,000 that staff had originally intended would be um, intended on allocating via a request for proposals based on the assessment that was provided by KU. So as of now, this is still staff's plan without, without different directions. So um, when the RFP itself is under, currently under development and uh, we're just kind of awaiting that final report to, to bring something to you. If the commission wishes to see those funds allocated in a different fashion, let us know and we can move forward as directed from you. Thank you. And if there are no further questions for me, I will turn it over to LCS staff to go through their presentation and both their staff and myself will be available for any follow-up questions and discussion afterwards. Thank you. Shall I go ahead and start? Yes, thank you. All right, let me share screen. There we go. Okay, can everyone see? Yes. All right. Good evening, City Commission. My name is Lacey Rowe, and I'm the Director of Community Engagement for the Lawrence Community Shelter. First, I want to say thank you to each of you for visiting our shelter and meeting with our leadership team to speak about our work and our ideas. We are excited to speak to you today about our shared vision of community care and impactful solutions. For a quick overview, we'll be giving some updates, reviewing best practices for emergency shelter, dis discussing needed support to address service gaps, listing our commitments as an organization, and sharing a vision for success. Here are the updates. In April, Melanie Valdez, our Director of Finance and Operations, transitioned into a dual role as the Interim Executive Director. Melanie has over 29 years of experience serving vulnerable populations and over 22 years with nonprofits. Additionally, the LCS Director team met with each City Commissioner, County Commissioner, and several community partners to discuss strategies for a shared vision of addressing homelessness. LCS also continues to work on improvements to strengthen our agency, including some exciting new board development and donor engagement planning. We've got lots of exciting stuff in store. I'll, I'll go ahead and turn the rest of the presentation over to Melanie Valdez. Hi, this is Melanie Valdez with Lawrence Community Shelter. And I will be sharing my screen as well. Can everybody see my screen? 
We lost Not it. Yet. I think that was still Lacey's. <laughs> okay. I'll go ahead and start while I'm waiting uh, to, to be able to share. Um, I wanted to start off by saying that even though I did not previously work uh, with those experiencing homelessness in my other nonprofit work or working with vulnerable populations, um, the subject of homelessness is very close to me. Um, 24 years ago, I found myself unexpectedly homeless in New Orleans um, at no fault of my own. I was there with uh, two young little boys, four and three. I was in my third trimester of pregnancy. Um, I was married at the time, but had a husband that uh, his work would take him away for several weeks at a time. Uh, I did not have a car and I was in a neighborhood that was not safe. So I do have a lot of uh, not only passion for the, for the work that we do every day, but also a lot of compassion for the people that we serve. Um, am I able to share my screen now? You should be. Okay. Okay. Can everybody see it yet? Yeah, thank you. Okay, great. Okay, like Lacey said, um, we have been very busy. We had a very full schedule meeting with each of the commissioner, city commissioners individually. Um, we met with each of the county commissioners, met with community partners and other stakeholders to take the opportunity um, to discuss concerns, hear suggestions, and hear about the vision of how others see LCS best meeting the needs of our community. Um, we also spoke to our current services, some of our challenges, and our dedication to working together towards the shared goal, shared goal of ending homelessness. Um, every day at LCS, we are making changes that will strengthen our foundation to not only be sustainable, um, but to begin to thrive. So as, as one of the primary components and a very critical role in our community's homeless crisis response system, um, we need to be an effective shelter model. And to be an effective shelter within the crisis response system, there are five key elements that must be present. The first one is a housing first approach that is focused on rapid exits to housing. And this just isn't um, specific to the shelter, but it should be a systemic approach. Um, we should have safe and appropriate diversion. And currently LCS does not um, have a diversion specialist. It is not part of our program, but we would like to see diversion and prevention offered at um, or within the coordinated entry system to help direct individuals experiencing homelessness or at risk of homelessness to other services so that they will never have to enter into shelter services. And the main thing that we do have control of at LCS is immediate um, low barrier access. And I'm gonna go into detail on that um, in just a moment. Um, but the fourth element is that we should be housing focused and have that rapid exit to services 
Um, and the shelter should be focused on assisting getting individuals or each individual into permanent housing. And the fifth element is to maintain data to measure performance. And the typical metrics that you see um, to be able to determine if you are meeting outcomes and to improve are based on length of stay um, within the shelter, um, exits to housing, and the rate of recidivism or returning to homelessness after leaving shelter services. Um, in the low barrier shelter model, we prioritize those that have the highest level of need and those that are the most vulnerable um, due to co-occurring issues such as childhood trauma and abuse, a history of chronic homelessness, chronic physical, mental, and behavioral health needs, impaired cognitive abilities, and lack of social supports. Um, the people that present with these co-occurring issues are the people that will need continued long-term supports once they are housed um, for them to be successful. And currently there is not only a lack of affordable housing, but there are no permanent supportive housing opportunities to meet the needs of these individuals. And that's why it's so important for LCS to really reduce barriers gain the trust of those that are service resistant so that we can connect them to other resources and prioritize um, access in an unhindered way so that those all of those people are able to access services. Low barrier access includes things like no employment requirements, no income requirements or service participation, um, no identification requirements, Entry is not denied if an individual is impaired by drugs or alcohol. Rules are based on safety alone and not based on control. Um, and no longer um, exclude those with violent criminal backgrounds or individuals required to register as sex offenders. And a couple of other things that really help people access services is becoming pet friendly and providing sufficient storage to secure their belongings. Now, some people might wonder that if we are shelter-based services, why we need a housing team. And having a housing team allows us to really assist people in several ways. Um, one, a lot of our folks need help filling out applications. Um, because they may have difficulty reading or writing, or they may not understand the importance or significance of filling in uh, different sections and just might need a lot of support for that. Um, also, we are able to engage with landlords and provide advocacy. Um, sometimes someone might have a felony that happened years and years ago and a landlord might be hesitant to rent for them and they need someone to advocate for them. Um, also, we are in an agreement with the housing authority uh, as a sponsoring agency when we refer someone and they become eligible for a voucher. If that person chooses us to continue with um, case management services, 
we will provide two years of case management. And also it allows us to provide other stabilization services to reduce the rate of recidivism. While providing sheltering services, we don't only assist with identifying housing for those with the highest barriers um, with limited options for assistance, but we also find a way to meet any of the other needs of the people as um, they arise. These things may include uh, getting identification, birth certificates, social security cards, um, covering prescription costs uh, when they do not have any insurance, paying for counseling services or purchasing work-related clothing. Um, sadly, we also had to support two individuals in hotels recently that were in need of hospice services. Lawrence only has hospice services that provide um, hospice and a patient's home. But what do you do if you don't have a home? Um, this is a very big service gap that we did our best to meet, but we really need to come together as a community to make sure all community members can receive hospice in a comfortable and dignified space. So moving forward, um, our leadership has identified needs or generated ideas on how we can be successful as an agency and also contribute in a way that makes us all successful. Moving forward, um, our leadership, I'm sorry, we would like to see a formal community housing plan that has a systemic alignment with Housing First. We can clearly define each agency's roles, responsibilities, collaborative efforts needed, and identify all resources available to be the most effective. We are also asking to be given the opportunity to rebuild trust. And we know there have been past promises, commitments, and rebrands that have fallen through. We know this has damaged trust and relationships, and we cannot change the past. We currently do have a very strong leadership team, and we want the chance to show the community and community partners that we are committed to being a strong and dependable presence. We would also like to incorporate more interagency training and education to strengthen the services of all partnering agencies. Understanding each other's roles and perspectives better and increasing training among, among all support staff will strengthen us as a whole and make our services more cohesive. Everyone at LCS would also love to have more community involvement. We would like opportunities for community education regarding our services and to break down myths and stereotypes regarding homelessness. We have many very dedicated supporters in the community, but the work is challenging and the expenses are high. We need more community support through donations, volunteering, and advocacy. And don't forget that we are all also volunteers and active people in our communities. Um, we're willing to partner to help meet the needs of other organizations as well. We wanna create a shared community vision to reach our goal of ending homelessness. Another thing that we identified um, that we need to plan for in the future is um, if we do see an uptick in COVID cases that we need to pre be prepared as a community um, 
Lawrence Community Shelter does plan on submitting a proposal for winter shelter to potentially increase the capacity considerably to meet the need. But we are concerned that if there is an outbreak in the winter that we will not have anywhere um, for people to go. There was one part about the funding that I did want to get into a little bit further um, that I did miss. But I did want to say that I used the Erica Dvorsky assessment um, to look at our staffing model or what our staffing model could be and also use the American Red Cross guidance for shelter services. And I did a capacity of 70 beds. And using the current um, wages that we offer, which are not competitive and not able to uh, bring in qualified staff or offer um, the supports they need to maintain staff and decrease turnover. Um, so with that level, with the assessment and the American Red Cross, it costs about $22,627 per bed annually. Um, this means that at our current wages and salaries at LCS, if we were to implement that model, um, advised to us that the uh, city general funds would cover about 12.82 beds annually. And the capacity given for the shelter um, has been 125, not including the winter shelter exception. And this number was based on available toilets and did not take into consideration the high level of needs of those within our services under a housing first model. Um, it did not take into consideration the spectrum of people we serve in a single space, people that are sober in the same space as people active in their addiction, people that are victims of domestic violence in the same space as those that have significant criminal backgrounds, people that have severe and persistent mental illness exhibiting erratic behavior in the same space as someone that has experienced significant abuse and trauma in the past and may be triggered by this. We also wanted to point out that even though we use metrics um, to measure success, and I know the city had said before um, that they wanted to add some accountability measures, and I believe that Erica Dvorsky assessment also recommended this. Um, the typical measures that we have been using is not really a demonstration of the success of LCS. It's really reflective of the entire um, crisis response system um, because we are not uh, determining the length of stay on our own. It's dependent on a collaborative effort to get people exited to housing and also based on the avail availability of affordable and appropriate housing. And we wanted to talk a little bit about um, some commitments that we are making. Um, we are committed to working with the city and county to best determine an appropriate capacity and staffing ratio to meet the community need to the best of our ability. We are committed to improving our sustainability through continued development of our leadership 
partnering and fundraising. We are willing to only provide housing services to those referred through the coordinated entry system that identifies those needing the most supports. And we will continue to reduce barriers to bring more of those that are chronically homeless, the most vulnerable, or the most service resistant into services so that they can get supports and connected to other resources. We also want to work along with Family Promise to see how we can better assist them with meeting the needs of families um, that are experiencing homelessness. We want to identify ways that we can fund and support families to stay within their own communities. Um, we will also continue using Monarch Village units for those that have exceptional needs, such as the need um, for private home health access or electricity for medical equipment. And also for those that have severe and persistent mental illness that cannot be successful in a congregate setting. And also to support those with a history of chronic homelessness that we are unsure if they have the skills to be successful um, independently. And also to give them some motivation to find out what it's like to have their own space if they've never even had a home before. We also want to continue to work with the city and county on how we can identify additional sites so that we can uh, meet the community need more responsibly by being able to segment, segment different demographics and provide smaller sites that are more secure and safe and specialize in the individual's needs. Sorry, I just lost my purse. Um, okay. We have been told before that we just need to focus on shelter, um, but all of the people at LCS, we, we don't wanna be just a shelter. We wanna truly be part of the solution. Um, we provide services to those experiencing homelessness. That is all we do. We are in direct contact as an agency with a large number of the community's population experiencing homelessness on an everyday basis. We spend our time educating ourselves on best practices, current research, learning about the shelter models and successful housing programs across the country. We want to be a part of every conversation regarding homelessness. We have insight and perspective to offer. We have passion for the cause. And we want to be a part of every effort that leads to affordable, accessible, and appropriate housing for the people we serve. So to summarize our vision for LCS, we broke it down into four categories, trust, equity, empowerment, and housing solutions. To build trust, we want to demonstrate that we have strong leadership that is committed to addressing challenges and achieving stability and success within the organization. Um, we want to continue to build organizational, organizational structure through development of policy and procedures and also continuing to develop our leadership and governance uh, through the directors and the board. We wanna have financial growth and transparency. Um, we wanna make sure that our funders know that we are good stewards of the gifts um, that allow us to do the work we do. And we wanna um, do our part to generate additional funding to better meet the community need. 
And we also um, want to have increased uh, community engagement because the increased collaboration with community partners and with all stakeholders through education, discussions and feedback will help us build those relationships. We want to promote equity and access to services. And when looking at the reasons that people avoid shelter services, LCS, LCS identified changes needed to make services more accessible and equitable. And those things were to only do rules based on safety and not have excessive rules just to control people's actions. Um, we also had a lot of people that have not been able to access services because we are not pet friendly. And there are many people that would um, rather be in an unsafe environment or hazardous conditions than be separated from their pets. Um, many people also carry everything they own, all of their belongings on their person or with them at all times. And they are in fear that if they do not have a safe place to secure their items, that they will lose them. So we are also trying to identify storage solutions um, so that people will have a safe place to keep their belongings. We also want to um, provide empowerment. And if we can offer our staff living wages um, or competitive wages in the very least, it reduces burnout and reduces our turnover of our frontline staff. Um, it does bring in more qualified workers. Uh, increasing staffing ratios provides better support to meet our service needs and increases the quality. And also providing more training will give our staff the skills um, to handle de-escalation, to have trauma-informed care, to engage in harm reduction so that they are empowered and feel confident in their jobs and they're more likely to stay. Um, whenever we empower our staff, we are also empowering our guests. Um, having those well-trained, consistent staff improves the services we have to offer. Um, we are able to meet people where they are and again, get people here accessing services without having to worry about um, being in an environment that they don't feel safe or secure. And staff would also get trained more in uh, motivational interviewing, which allows them to speak to people in a way to get them to engage in services um, on their own and without any coercion. And also it provides the staff with skills to engage with guests in a way that uh, lets them identify their own strengths and then they can make their own choices and feel like they have control over their life. Also for success, uh, we really want to work on housing solutions. Uh, the shelter should be more than just a des destination. It should be um, a flow through part of the process. If we do not identify the abilities to exit. Um, every time an individual walks through our doors, 
then it becomes a place where people just get stuck and have nowhere to go um, other than back to homelessness. And um, we also need to find housing solutions to address chronic homelessness. Um, those experiencing chronic homeless, homelessness have a higher need for supports. We need to provide low, low barrier access to services and prioritize those that have complex needs. And those people, um, because of their exceptional needs and the co-occurring issues that they have do require a richer staffing model. Um, we do need to find ways, as the city knows, for permanent supportive housing. This is the research-based solution or best solution for helping those that are chronically homeless. Um, and I you know, don't need to say it, that we just don't have the options that we need right now. Um, I know in 2020, the county did join the Built for Zero initiative and everybody is, from what I can tell, getting on board with Housing First and understanding that we have to meet the needs of the most vulnerable in our communities and get them into a place where they can focus on other needs. And LCS is willing um, to be a part of the work uh, to find those effective solutions as a community. And we are making our commitments to do whatever it takes um, on our end to do that, as long as we are doing it in a safe and responsible way. And um, I do thank the commissioners uh, for meeting with us individually and just taking the time to get to know us and hear some of the challenges we were facing and uh, also listening to our presentation tonight and your continued efforts to end homelessness in the city of Lawrence. And I thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and thank you, Lacey Donnell. Is there anything else you need to follow up with? Um, no, I just want to say thank you to, to LCS staff too for, for putting this together and for putting the report together. Um, it was it was very good information, I think, for, for everyone to, to know. So I don't have anything else unless you have questions for me. Great, thank you. Are there any questions? Annie, this is Commissioner Sellers. Um, and this might be a question for you as well as for Melanie at LCS. Um, I can't remember at our June 14th meeting if I, I asked this. At that meeting, we looked at the, um, the 2022 Emergency Solutions Grant. And my question was, the funds that were requested for LCS, those matching dollars didn't, the $145,000 that, that, that we'll vote on tonight, that wasn't included as a contingency match for those dollars, correct? This is Danny Walters. I, I'm i gonna have to go back and look. I, I definitely remember the question and remember the conversation, but yeah. I'm gonna have to go back and look. I thought that it did include the 145, but that was for the, the whole entirety of the ask for 2021. Um, okay. 
The match information is actually solidified after the award is made from the, the award state. is made. Yeah. So hypothetically speaking, if there were funds that were not available that were identified as available, they would have a chance to to use something else for match. Okay. And we have not heard back on ESG 2021 yet. Everything was due to the state at the end of June. So okay. we are patiently waiting to hear. So. Any other questions? Melanie, I had a couple of questions. I know in the presentation um, for your how under housing solutions, you have where it says um, under chronic homelessness, it has low barrier trauma informed shelter prioritizes those with complex needs. And so if that is the model that LCS is wanting to use, then where do individuals that don't meet that parameter, the, the, that don't meet that level, where do they go? Or how to navigate me through that pathway? Yeah, I will start on this and Melissa might be able to expand on it if I miss anything because she has more, um, works more closely with kind of how coordinated entry works. But the shelter model is designed to prioritize those with the highest need because those um, without barriers to housing usually can either self-resolve or get into housing with what they call a light touch of services because they just don't need as many supports because they probably don't have past evictions and felonies and all those things that make it difficult to be housed. And so ideally, uh, the coordinated entry system would divert them to other resources and supports so that they never reach shelter services. Okay. So then in looking at some of the information out there about immediate and low barrier shelters, you know, there's a strong emphasis on configuration and you know accommodation so does the current shelter does the shelter as it presents now provide for those accommodations in that configuration so that individuals across the low barrier spectrum are feel safe and that there's no potential and you know a sense of there, there could be some type of reaction to someone who may be so you know that there's no idea that someone could impact someone based on the current configuration um the warehouse model is not ideal and um, most models do have scattered sites or if they are a single building they usually are very large buildings that are multiple levels where it's easier to segment different needs uh, there is no way in our current space that individuals won't impact the others uh, with the significant needs or even people that maybe kind of hit middle of the road as far as needs go. Um, there's always an impact. And the more people we serve, we do see an increase in conflict. And uh, we see people that come in sober and they are around people that are active in their uh, substance use. 
And usually it takes just a few weeks and that person is not sober anymore. Um, so we do see things like that frequently, which is why um, as we increase capacity, we really have to up supports and increase uh, with staff and volunteers to really have kind of people interacting and in multiple spaces to keep an eye out for potential conflicts or any other issues that may come up. Okay, so you have a group, so you potentially have a population that is high complex needs. And I would imagine that that would require staff to have a specific type of skill set, which to what you allude to in training opportunities for trauma-informed care and motivational mm -hmm. interviewing and, and whatnot. So does the current staff, as it stands, meet those capacities? I mean, meets those, do they have the ability and the skill sets to do that? And what are you doing now to mitigate that if they don't? Um, we do have weekly meetings with our uh, frontline workers to offer them training and supports and allow them the opportunity to uh, have conversations directly with leadership to support any questions or training needs that they may have. And um, we do off offer different opportunities for training. We just recently um, stat came in and did a training for our staff. Um, it is one of the struggles or challenges that we have is because we can't offer competitive wages. Uh, we can't bring in or find people that are already qualified or have experience. It is an entry level position. So people do not have like certifications or licenses, but they're being asked to support people um, that otherwise licensed practitioners would be working directly with. So it is a very stressful job. Um, the, the skills needed are trainable, but um, the turnover rate is exceptionally high among emergency shelters. It exceeds 50 or 60%. Um, so while we're trying to keep staff trained, losing staff, so we're not able to maintain that knowledge, um, which creates a huge burden on the entire agency. It creates a burden on the other workers that are trying to stay. So we know as an agency that we have to continue to focus uh, development and increasing our revenues and diversifying our funding and building it up because we know that we need to offer competitive wages to get qualified staff, to um, increase training and supports so that we can meet this need. Okay. And my, I'll, I'll ask one more question and then I'll, I'll yield to my other fellow commissioners. So you, you laid out several pieces in, the, in your presentation around you know, increasing staff training, staff knowledge, board training, board knowledge, while also alluding to other key instructional components needed for 
for the agency around funding, securing funding, diversifying funding, um, building up culture morale, implementing a new model. That those are a lot of balls being juggled around. So help me understand how you, how your team, how LCS is operationalizing this, implementing this. There um, seems to be a lot of divergent pieces here. So help me understand how you're processing through this. And that's why we still spoke a lot to it being a vision. Um, it is our goal. It is the housing first guidance for us to remove as many barriers to services as possible. And that's um, how within housing first that we will best meet the need of the community. But we also know that we need to strengthen as an agency and build up our foundation. And we have been extremely focused on that with um, really working on internal policy and procedure, board development, leadership development, um, building you know, these relationships or trying to rebuild relationships with community partners because we know we can't do it alone. We need supports, um, we need to build up trust, we need to focus on the agency, get that foundation strong so that we can move towards this vision and meet the needs of the community. And one more quick question, um, an addendum. So with that being said, have you have you and your team, even the board, put together some type of comprehensive budget of what it would look like, ideally with the staff needs and everything? If you had a fully functioned housing first, low barrier shelter that was fully staffed, what would that look like funding-wise? Do you have that available? Yeah. Um, well, I probably don't have it available in a format to pull up just immediately right now. Um, but as I had spoken about, uh, using the model that Erica Dvorsky su suggested with four frontline workers and um, some, some different roles within the shelter, but also all of the uh, administrative and indirect role, uh, support roles that we have in place. Um, I did do a budget offering basically the wages and salaries that we currently offer and then bumping them up to what would be just barely entering into a competitive wage and then bumping up again to uh, to really what would be considered more of a livable wage and the most likely to bring in people that are qualified and experienced and committed all the way up to the ED level. And that was to, to support 70 beds within this model. And it ranged from around 22,600 uh, per bed annually um, to about 28,000 per bed annually. Um, and that was kind of a conservative approach because I didn't want to really inflate any numbers. But based on your current, so does your current budget, operational budget, I would imagine doesn't reflect what you actually need to, to do what it is that you're proposing. 
No, it doesn't at all. And I'm, I'm uh, that is why we have not been able to meet what the city had suggested through the 2019 assessment because, um, and I wasn't here back then, but it was my understanding that LCS did bump up the staffing model to the four person frontline roles to um, enriching all of the supports. But then the um, funding that was also demonstrated in that assessment was not given. So there wasn't any funding to support it. And that's why we are now saying that for us to make significant changes, we know that we need more funding. We need to identify multiple sources of funding. And also as an agency, we need to do our part to make sure that we are using all of our resources to increase funding. Because not until we do that, we are not going to be able to provide the supports and the training and bring in the staff that we need to increase our capacity to, to a much higher level than what we're doing now. I have a lot more questions, but I'll yield. <laughs> Commissioners, other questions? Commissioner Fingledy. Um, Melanie, thanks for the presentation and thanks for you know the work you've been doing and, and your team has been doing um, to move it move it forward. Um, I guess I have to ask questions, not make too many comments yet, but a um, couple couple questions. Um, you know, several next to the funding, which Commissioner Sellos um, talked about. Um, several of the other features you put in there, you know, about becoming low income, I, I think are things I'm interested in knowing more about and interested in supporting. And I just wondered if you could give a, a few more details. One, um, on your move to becoming pet friendly. And I know in your report, you talked about working with the Humane Society to get some information on that. And maybe, can you give us a little update on where you're at in that, that uh, Continuum, are you at the beginning stages or, or where do you think we're going to go? Where are you going to go from here on that? Um, we are planning on meeting next Friday. They're coming to the shelter. They want to see the space that we have to offer to potentially kennel animals that need to be kenneled. Um, but really, we are just going to go along with their guidance. Um, they're going to be the experts on this. And... Um, because I feel like we really need to fully understand how to recognize if, if an animal is going to be aggressive or what should we do if an animal is sick or injured? Um, how do we get the pets this, the services that they need? So we are in the very beginning of having those discussions. Um, I do feel it's very important and I know not being pet friendly really causes a significant amount I mean, a good number of people to not access services, which I think most pet owners would understand. Agreed. I, I, I mean, I've heard that over the years as well. I mean, that's not new, and I applaud you for trying to, to walk that direction. The other one, I think, is the storage solutions. Um, 
And, and are you talking only about storage solutions within your facility? Or are you talking about storage solutions throughout the, the community to allow people um, to feel more comfortable accessing new services? I think it's both. Um, when people enter into services, um, I know that they're always going to have belongings that they want to know are safe and secure. Um, they might have medications or things that we really don't want them to have easy access to while on property, but they're free to take with them, um, such as weapons. So um, we do want to find storage solutions for on-site uh, to give people the ability to access services freely, but we would love to work with uh, the community, with the city, whoever it would take to work with to find different sites for storage solutions because a lot of people, like I said, do carry all of their belongings on their person and just to allow them to be more free and light and maybe more willing to come into services, knowing that they aren't going to lose those items or um, have them be stolen or, or thrown away, I think would just really help the population or the community a lot. This is Danny Walters. I could also add that at the city level, those are conversations that we have had as well for um, some storage options and fully intend on working with LCS on what those solutions could look like. So. Thank you for that and I could, like you said, I could see solutions, you know, libraries, city property, others just, I mean, again, given the distance to, you know, get to LCS and maybe, you know, not wanting to go there the first time, not knowing if you, quote, can trust LCS. I could see someone wanting to store their things before they go there and not wait to get there to store it. I mean, it might be a something that, that gives them more comfort, um, you know, in using the services. So I, I appreciate that. Um, you know, Melanie, I know one of the things you're working hard on and, and is, you know, working um, with some of our other agencies and, and uh, you know, as you said, I think, you know, building that partnership, rebuilding some of that trust. And I know you've been having some of those meetings. Um, can you give me a little on how that's going or how that's being received or, or, or you know, what, what's the next steps in that process as well? Yeah, I think we've met with almost every agency. Um, there, there was some reluctance with some, um, but we, you know, just got in there and had them give us a chance. And we've had some really good conversations. Um, we do want to move forward with housing authority to possibly use some monarch village units for transitional housing for those that have been approved for vouchers, but are having a difficult time finding a landlord to rent to them. Um, some people just need some of that stability be to, behind them uh, for a landlord to kind of get that trust to lease. And maybe in the future, whenever we can find a way to secure funding for an expansion, that, that would also contribute to more people um, receiving vouchers so that they can get into homes. And like I said, we're working with uh, the Humane Society. We've initiated conversations with Family Promise. I still need to call Dana back again to talk more about helping families be supported in the community because we feel that is the best place for them. 
especially as we move more and more low barrier at the shelter. Um, it's just not a place um, for children. And trying to think of the other agencies. We've met with so many people, it's hard, but oh. we're also we're also working with Burt Nash. We've had some conversations about um, how to bet, better meet winter shelter needs and how we could uh, do some collaboration on that. And we'll, we'll include that both of our uh, pieces and a proposal. Um, we have also talked about collaborative efforts in the future when applying for grants like the um, like the home ARP and really working together as agencies to meet all of our needs because we all need housing. That is the one thing that is really holding us all back and not able to meet um, the needs of the people we serve. Yep. And we've also been working with reentry um, to make sure that we have spaces available for people that are exit, you know, within the reentry program, but um, are exiting into homelessness from from the jail. But yeah, we have we've met with so many people. Just list, listing it right now is very yeah. very hard. But we have been working together. Yeah, and I didn't didn't need you to to list them all, but I, I certainly have been hearing that in the community, and, and I appreciate that. And I do think that's a important important step in in, in this process. Um, and and you've addressed this a couple times. I just because I think it's a a rumor, I guess, or a, a story you hear in the community, and I just give you a chance to answer it. And you kind of already have, but this idea that you hear that LCS is not even using Monarch Village. They have empty, they have these houses sitting empty. Um, can you, can you, again, you've talked a little bit about that, but can you respond to that? I can. Um, so as we have been saying, we have always kept some units available for COVID isolation because that was their original intended use. And um, whenever they were designed for us by Dan Rockhill and dedicated to us from the School of Architecture. That was what they had in mind and then said that um, after the pandemic, which we're still kind of waiting to see when that's going to happen exactly, but um, that we could identify the best use. Um, but they were marketed as for families and the community intended them to be for families. Um, so when I came and other leadership came and I, I saw the units and they, they are extremely small. And I'm not saying that they're not better than being unsheltered and homeless, but they are very tiny. And then we had to put uh, these very large sprinkler systems in them. And we had bunk beds with sprinkler heads right accessible to where the kids would be. And it just seemed like it just was not an appropriate option space-wise, safety-wise, and also, um, again, serving families on the property with the things that we uh, work with every day, like the people that we work with every day and the needs that we're meeting. There's conflict, there's yelling, and um, there might be 
different things on property that indicate substance use that we don't want children finding. Children would not be able to play freely on site. And also, um, they're away from their community and their peers, and they have to be bused to school, and it can take like a very long bus ride for young children. So we were trying to move away from the idea that Monarch Village, the best use for Monarch Village was for families. So we started uh, really using them to meet people with uh, the needs of people with exceptional medical needs. Uh, a lot of people, uh, a lot of people experiencing homelessness have significant health needs um, due to the, the lifestyle and being out in the environment a lot and not having access to medical services or preventative me medical services, I should say. Um, so we have people come that have significant health needs. They might need access to electricity to plug in medical equipment all the time. They might be receiving home health services where they really need a private, more dignified space to receive those services. Um, we also use them for people that have uh, severe and persistent mental illness that have been in the congregate setting but are not being successful. They um, may be disruptive because of behaviors they exhibit due to, due to their mental illness. And at times this could cause, it could be upsetting to others and it starts leading to conflict. So it's easier to allow them to have their own space. And whenever they have their own space, we really see people thrive and that in that situation. So it, it has been a very good use um, in that situation. And also with people that are chronically homeless, if we, since we have not had permanent supportive housing and we know that we are going to likely, um, if we do potentially have the ability to house them through a rapid rehousing or other assistance, sometimes we don't know if they are able to be self-sufficient um, because they're kind of in the middle. They've never really had a place of their own and they've never been able to develop some of those skills like just being safe, making sure a stove's turned off, making sure their home is locked. Um, are they able to cook or budget? Um, all those things like we don't know because we don't see those things in the shelter services. So what we would do is allow them to be out in Monarch Village so we can kind of see how well they would function within their own independent space and see what support needs they might have. And also what we've noticed is people that have been experiencing chronic homelessness, they may not have ever had a home of their own or it may have been so long that they have been conditioned to just living, you know, unsheltered. So providing them their own private space actually starts to instill some motivation in them because they can then feel like what it's like to have that space just to themselves. Okay. So, Thank you. Yeah, so oh, Monarch Village has now. been used for lots of reasons. Yes. And actually, um, we were we just had to use them for some isolation reasons, and we were more than full, and many of them were doubled up. So we thought we were 
going to exceed our, our capacity for Monarch. Okay. Thank you. Those are all the questions I have for now. Nelly, I have one more quick question. Um, under sure. the, in the infographic that you provided um, that discussed safe and appropriate diversion, and that's for individuals that might be, you know, having a, you said a housing crisis. So can you explain, and this is more, this is for my personal edification, but also for our community as well. Is there a centralized contact or resource for individuals who, who are experiencing a high housing crisis? There is not, and that's been a conversation that we've been having within the shelter um, that would be really something that I feel like we should prioritize as a community to have many um, cities do have like a hotline that is part of the coordinated entry system. So if people are experiencing homelessness or at risk of homelessness can call one central line and that line will then direct them to the appropriate resources and the ones that provide, like I said earlier, the lightest touch um, to get them stabilized. And that prevents um, people excessively entering into shelter services unnecessarily. Good. Yeah. Any other questions? I mean, I can talk forever. I know you can do that. Um, I already lost. Okay. Um, let's make sure there's no public comment. Hi, I'm Chris Flowers, and I just like to voice my support for for given the funding, I guess. But also, it just seems kind of troubling that if it if it's going to cost like, what was it, over 22000 per bed for, um, or I guess an over 22000 cost per bed for the city for each person staying there. It just seems we need to start thinking of other solutions than the shelter. We need something else where it won't cost as much to be um, providing shelter to people like I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't have the solution, but just my, what I pay in rent and food per month is less than what we'd be paying, you know, for the, for, for a person's bed at the shelter. So, I mean, I support giving more funding and I mean, not just this, but in general, because I, I think we need more, we need something else than just a shelter at this point. Thank you. Good evening. Thank you. Um, my oh, name is Jenny we're, oh, sorry. sorry, we're we're going to do everyone in the room here. We have someone at the podium, and then we'll call on you here in a second. Thank you. All right. Hi, I'm Jordan Bickford. Um, the 2022 city budget includes stated city mission to create a community where all enjoy life and feel at home. One of the strategies of the city's strategic plan is to create a strong and welcoming neighborhood with an equity and inclusion strategy to create lasting solutions to connect people to housing, to make houselessness a rare, brief, and one-time experience. The work of the strong and welcoming neighborhood strategy is to be undertaken by city staff, including the police department, whose 
2022 budget included a $1.9 million increase over their 2021 budget. This request is for only $145,000. And with the approval of this request, the funding for the shelter for the year would be only $290,000, an amount that realistically covers only 12 beds. Where we invest our resources matters. Studies show that housing not only contributes to a reduction in crime and recidivism, but further contributes to increased access to health care, mental health resources, and employment. The Lawrence Community Shelter provides emergency shelter and programming with a housing first priority. This allows our neighbors access to a safe space, consistent meals, a shower, laundry facilities, a place to receive mail things many of us are privileged enough to take for granted. Guests at the shelter are typically housed for up to 90 days with the goal to exit to a stable and or permanent housing situation. People are best positioned for behavioral health recovery and lifelong wellness when their housing is secure. If we are truly a community that prioritizes people being able to enjoy their lives and feel at home, we need to ensure our resources are invested in resources that promote not only those priorities, but the health, safety, and dignity of all people, particularly our houseless neighbors. I encourage the commission to approve the current funding request and encourage city staff to work to identify additional resources to support the life-saving work of the Lawrence Community Shelter. Thank you. Okay, now we'll go to the online and I'm going to let Sherry call on people. Thank you, Mayor. Let me just expand this so I can get to everybody. you'd like to speak yeah there you go sorry no, we're, we're waiting <laughs> all right thanks clayton gerard oh you're on mute no doesn't look like he's on mute you might check your uh computer mic and make sure it's in the right setting <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, maybe you could um, do some testing there, log out and log back in, and we'll move on to the next person, and we'll look for you here in a minute, Clayton. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and call on uh, Jamie Price, but if anyone who's wanting to provide comment could please use the raise your hand function. Um, it's easier for us to know who is wanting to provide comment. Thank you. Thank you. Good evening. Uh, my name is Jamie Price. I've been a citizen of Lawrence, Kansas for the past 33 years. I've recently joined um, uh, the board of directors of uh, the Lawrence Community Shelter. And I, I just wanted to assure the, the commission this evening that we are 
dedicated um, to ensure um, structure at the shelter um, in terms of um, policy and procedures, development of leadership and governance um, at all levels. Um, we are focusing on fundraising and donor development um, and working to continue to strengthen um, and to develop community partnerships um, throughout um, this year and, and the out years. And we can't thank the uh, commission enough for the funding thus far with the shelter. And we would encourage the um, additional um, funding that's being requested. Thank you for your time this evening. Asan Latif. Thank you so much. Um, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, again, my name is Hassan Latif. Um, I'm a Lawrence resident and I'm also, I serve on the board um, for the shelter. Uh, and I just, I wanna thank the city commission for taking the time to listen to uh, Melanie and Lacey on their presentation and to consider our request for the additional funding um, and uh, listen and discuss the issues that are facing the homeless population in Lawrence. Um, especially just want to quickly thank Melanie and Melissa and Lacey for their hard work on, on these issues. And we've been working with them as the board for the last few months uh, and beyond that. And they've been doing um, a, lot, a lot of discussions that we've had that, that you guys are hearing about today are things that we've been talking about that they've, they've been working on themselves. And I just want to thank them so much for their hard work. Um, our goal with the shelter is to provide safe trauma-informed services for the Lawrence's, for Lawrence's homeless population. Um, and I think we wanna do that for as many as people as possible, uh, but we just wanna make sure we can do that in a way that's safe um, and that will not cause people to have to revert into uh, previous behaviors or to cause more trauma to people. And to do that, um, you know, there's a lot of discussions we probably still need to continue to have like um, and like we discussed in Melanie's presentation about what it would take to get to a place where we could serve more and more people. Um, but I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that there are a lot of success stories of people who go to the shelter and then are moved out into housing. Our previous, um, one of our board members, Dan White, used to be, he's on the move out team still. And he used to tell us about a lot of experiences and stories he had moving people out of the shelter and into housing and what a wonderful experience and what a feeling of um, fulfillment you get being part of that team and seeing the work that gets done to put people into housing and the way it changes their lives. And my understanding is a large portion of those people stay in housing after they move out and are, they find secure housing. Um, and so we want to continue to do that work and to do that. I join staff in requesting uh, that the remaining funding be released and also that we continue to work together to face um, to and work on the issues that are facing the, our homeless population in Lawrence. We're very, we take a lot of pride in Lawrence in our consideration and our caring about marginalized populations. And I think that uh, an important part of that is to consider our homeless population in Lawrence. And I thank you guys for doing that today uh, with these discussions. Thank you. Is there anyone else who would like to provide public comment on this item? Oh, I saw Clayton and then he disappeared. <clears throat> Hi, this is Brian Bradfield. If you don't mind, I can go ahead. I'll be uh, brief. Uh, Brian Bradfield, I am a board member of the Lawrence Community Shelter. I've been privileged for the last seven months to be a, a part of a great organization. Really want to echo the hard work that 
Melanie and team has accomplished, but also acknowledge the hard work that they have ahead of them and really um, support of the city uh, allocating funds to allow us to continue the vision and be a great asset to the community of Lawrence uh, that I've been a member of for 24 years. And I think it's a great community and uh, appreciate everything that's been done and appreciate the commission for giving us the time to uh, let you know what we've done and uh, what uh, challenges we have in front of us. Clayton Gerard. Yes, hopefully okay. you can hear me now. Okay, awesome. So my name is Clayton Gerard. I have been a volunteer at LCS since last fall. And I just wanted to speak to a little bit about the um, funding piece and ensuring that LCS gets more funding. Um, to begin, I wanted to share a personal experience. About two weeks ago, I had a family member pass away, which required me to travel out of state and help with funeral arrangements, had to stay at hotels and relatives' homes, and constantly interact with different people. Um, upon returning home last week, I laid in my own bed in my own home after sleeping in my car for the previous nights, and I was surprised when I started crying and couldn't stop for a few hours. But this was when I realized that it was only in this space where I could experience privacy and a sense of safety that I was able to have the release that stress and emotions require. I'm very privileged in that I had this space to process and a job that could be flexible and allow me time off and people around me to offer emotional and material support. Um, the congregate shelter as it is, is built to store products and not people, which means that no matter how many volunteers and staff and how hard they work, which they work very hard, um, the shelter is a very difficult place to live. And the approach to store as many people as possible is the opposite of solution. I've been working with leadership at LCS on ways we can try to implement trauma-informed design in the shelter to provide a more effective environment that supports people in their difficult times and positions them to successfully transition out of the shelter. The recent Douglas County, Douglas County Homelessness Needs Assessment of affirms the importance for trauma-informed design in homeless shelters. And in their report of trauma-informed design research for homeless shelters, Jill Pable and Anna Ellis say, people experiencing trauma are often understandably distracted by the nature of their situation, sometimes needing to spend their mental bandwidth on securing their next meal or dry place to sleep that night. Ideally, LCS would be a space that provides relief for these worries, but the lack of privacy, comfort, and sense of safety can often compound experiences of trauma that so many who experience homelessness face. There are simple interventions that can be made to provide more trauma-informed spaces and also the needed supports for staffing and better pathways for permanent housing. My experience from last week sharpened my understanding for the need for environments that offer people privacy and a sense of safety. And a congregate shelter filled to the brim with people only contributes to harmful conditions that pe keep people down. The shelter has done an amazing job providing services and incorporating evidence-based practices to support guest success after their stay at the shelter. But as a Lawrence resident, I think it's pretty embarrassing that our community hasn't done a better job so far. Volunteering every weekend at the shelter for almost a year has opened my eyes to how the city and myself can do better. So um, providing that funding would be a big piece for that. Thank you.
that's all the comments, Mayor. All right, thanks everyone. Um, let's go ahead and bring it back to the commission. Any qu further questions or comments? I just wanna uh, thank Melanie and her staff and as well as the board members for the information they've brought to us. The report that they presented, um, I had a chance to read through it and I thought it was very thorough and, and answered a lot of questions that I had. Um, I had an opportunity to meet with them one-on-one -on -one a while back and, and I, again, I really appreciated their, their thoughtfulness during that meeting and uh, presenting information to me very freely. Um, uh, you know, the report that I read, they are, they're very cognizant of the issues that they have at hand from building relationships. And I think they're doing a very heartfelt job of trying to do that. Um, I'm supporting this, uh, releasing the rest of this money, and I encourage you to continue on your path that you've outlined in your report, as, as well as um, the projects you're trying to bring forth. So, I, again, I appreciate it, and I'll support this. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, real quick. Um, it looks like we had one more person raise their hand to speak, or I just oh, closing public comment, so I... One advantage of being on Zoom is you can see this a little easier. You can see everybody. I apologize. Oops. Thanks, Brian. Uh, thanks. Oh. Well, her hand just went down. Maybe not. Oh, okay. Oh, it's back up. <laughs> I see it this time. Ashlyn Graham. <laughs> Yes, hello, my name is Ashlyn Graham. I had a comment regarding the funding for the shelter um, in support of it. Um, previously in 2019, I was homeless here in Lawrence and um, I had nowhere to go and I went to the shelter. Um, at the time I was suicidal, I was self-harming, um, you know, all of that stuff, very mentally ill. And because of the shelter, I was able to sustain a job, I was able to get into housing, um, and it was very important to me. And because of the shelter, and then later Burt Nash, I have been, um, you know, I haven't been suicidal in a while, I haven't been self harming in a while. And it's very, um, you know, to Lawrence to the society, um, to have this shelter for people like me, um, to be able to, you know, get better get jobs and get housing. Thank you. Thank you. Is there any other public comment on this item? Commissioner, were you saying something? Oh, yeah. Um, just a couple of items that I want to echo the same sentiments of Vice Mayor Larson. Um, you know, the I, you know, Melanie, I had the opportunity to come out and meet with the group and, you know, I, I agree that you are in the process of building a new culture and a new model of support and in a time that we are trying to address homelessness, chronic homelessness, um, with a deadline that might have been a little bit amb ambitious. And so, um, you know, I appreciate the candor that you and your team provided me. Um, and I know that I shared some thoughts and I asked some difficult questions like I, I asked them tonight. And by no way would I want that to be misconstrued in a way that of I, I'm 
skeptic of of what's going on or or what it is that you're you're trying to accomplish or and what you and the board are trying to accomplish. Um, you know, I've I've shared it many many times. You know, just homelessness in general, but we're focusing on you're focusing on low barrier um, and housing security. I mean, this is a big heavy complex ball and you're trying to unravel it and um you know i don't want to harp too much on the past um but i would say there's been some there's parts that can speak to lcs being set up to fail and you're now at a point and you have a team that is working to identify what space you're going to occupy um, to address a value gap. And there's things that we know we need to accomplish. There's reports that tells us what we need to accomplish. We know that there are strategies that we're going to have to discuss and, and, and truly put policy and funding to blend those two together to actually accomplish what it is that we want to, whether it's built to zero housing first or just addressing access to housing and creating housing security for all in our community. So, you know, this is, you have a lot of work ahead of you and in, in, in hearing and conversing with you and the team, you know, I had concerns that there are agencies in our community that are not playing fair in the sandbox and that's we can't we can't continue that and um i know we're waiting on the final report from KUCPPR, but i imagine that there's things that we already know that the report is going to tell us and it's just a matter of fact that we're going to have to build the strategies out and start implementing them and that's what you're doing right now um like i said you have a Balls in the air um, as it relates to board development, staffing, staffing qualifications, bringing on a new model, doing that in an infrastructure that is not conducive to what it is that you want to do, addressing funding, funding sources, that is a lot. And while I support you getting the second half of these dollars, at this point, what I would like to see is all of this that was presented to us. I want you to come back to us with something that shows me and shows the rest of the commissioners how you are attacking this, because this is a lot. And I know 145,000 is not gonna solve it. And I know that you, you all have applied for you know, ESG dollars and ESG CARES dollars, which is in the manager's report. Um, but I need, I want to see where you, where your team is going to, where you're progressing and how you're progressing. Um, because that's huge, you know, and I, I commend you and I know, and I, I'm, rooting for you all to be successful in this. Um, but I would be remiss if I didn't say I have concerns that you're doing a huge lift 
and for it to be contingent. I don't want it to feel like it's contingent on a pot of gold. I think you have some plans in place. I think with some more community, you know, more collaborative, intentional engagement with partners, you guys are going to truly be able to bridge these gaps. Um, but I need to see where the plan and the funding is coming together and that it's moving towards something. I think we got a, a lot of narrative, but I didn't see a, I didn't see strategies and plans. So um, again, I support giving you all the second half of the dollars. Um, but with all that you discussed today and then you presented on, I'd like to see where that progression is coming because I think that'll speak to how successful you and your team will continue to be in addressing the model that you want to accomplish and being successful with what it is that you are hoping to achieve. Uh, yes, uh, just wanna, yeah, I will be supporting this, uh, the, the remaining allocation. Um, I wanna first of, all, first of all, thank you, Melanie and your team, uh, especially for being vulnerable and inviting me into your space and, uh, you know, adding in my knowledge about the uh, community shelter. Um, actually viewing the space itself um, was uh, illuminating um, to see exactly what you guys deal with and uh, how you try to navigate that. So um, I, I agree with what everybody said. Uh, this is, uh, we know that, uh, you know, that more additional help is needed. Um, and I think this is the beginning of a, uh, forming a good strategy on how to get there. Um, but uh, most of all, I wanted to, you know, commend you guys on, um, you know, realizing that, uh, you know, that some outreach was needed um, and to uh, express to everyone the, the, the narrative of, of exactly what, what goes on at the shelter. So um, I really commend you guys on on reaching out and engaging with partners. Uh, and like you were saying to Commissioner Finkeldy, uh, upcoming projects uh, potentially with uh, Monarch Village and uh, the Housing Authority and then, you know, Winter Shelter uh, are encouraging. Um, and I wanna keep that momentum going forward. So thank you guys. Commissioner Finkeldy, did you say everything or do you got more? Oh, I'll say a few more things, but <laughs> I usually can't. Um, yeah, I mean, but, not a lot to add, except, you know, I obviously when we we uh, asked to, you know, have you come back before we gave you the other half of the funding, um, this is exactly, I think, what we wanted to know and wanted to, to hear. Um, you know, I'm, I'm probably one of the folks that have over the years lost a little bit of trust and belief in the, in the shelter. Um, but you guys are restoring that. Thank you, Melanie. Thank you, Lacey. Thank you to your team and your board. Um, you know, this is, these are the steps. Um, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm a small piece of that, but I also think, you know, the, the work you're doing with our partners, I'm, I'm hearing that from partners as well. Um, and, and so uh, I appreciate your effort. Um, appreciate, you know, your, your focus. Um, your vision that you have in several of those categories are things that, um, you know, I, I think we all can agree on that we need. As you say, you're one piece of the puzzle. I mean, the ultimate solution is 
housing first, which means we have to have houses to put people in. And one day we hope you're out of business, you know, or, you know, that, that we have people go, go directly to housing because there's so many people have said tonight, in, including Clayton um, and others that, you know, um, putting people in the, in, in a, a facility like that is, is not the destination or not the end goal. The, end, you know, the goal is to get people housed. Um, but we're not there yet. And, and we know we have a lot of work to do and, and, we'll, and, you know, frankly, we're putting quite a bit of money towards those long range goals. Um, but, you know, part of making that whole system work is to have a, a, a low barrier shelter, as you pointed out in your first slide. That's part of the whole housing first model is you have to have that as a working part of the, the entire um, plan. And so, um, you know, I, I appreciate your, you, you're working within that system. And, and again, some of these things like that you're working on, um, you know, the low barrier, the pet friendly, even some of the storage solutions, I think are things that will make a big difference. And so appreciate that. And I guess that leads me, certainly I'm gonna support the other half of funding. Um, but I did want to ask Danny if, if she could come back on the 215,000 and the RFP process, can you tell me what, when you say an RFP on the housing plan, what, what, what are you meaning by that? I mean, is that something, for example, leading to the direct question? Is that something, for example, the shelter could apply for more funding for? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, this is this is Danny Walters. Like I said, we're we're just in the very opening stages of putting that together. But um, the, the the thought process was that we would look at this assessment and look at, at maybe some of those identified places that were um, not necessarily the the strategic ones that that we looked at funding, but some opportunity to for agencies to be able to apply for some other funding that's speaking directly to what that assessment came back at. So um, it will be crafted um, based on what that what that report says. So absolutely, there would be an opportunity for, for a program like what LCS is running to be able to apply for that. Um, but you also mentioned from the, at the beginning of the meeting, I mean, that's the plan at the moment, mm -hmm. but if we had other ideas, you'd be open to hearing that? Absolutely, yes. Well, I do think the idea of an RFP is important. Um, I do think um, because the, the idea that we hear from others who are thinking about things we're not thinking about, you know, I think is an important part of the process because people could have ideas that we're not focused on. So, I, I mean, certainly I like that idea. But, um, you know, I, I also think that, you know, some of the things we heard from LCS tonight, um, you know, to Commissioner Seller's point, you know, if there was a plan put together, you know, a, a more detailed plan, I think Melanie has some of that, but, and, and we looked at, you know, some funding gaps. I mean, I know we're focused on funding outcomes and I myself would be interested in, in even without an RFP process for maybe a portion of the funds, you know, if we saw a plan that we thought we needed to fund and could fund that, you know, we, we could, you know, look at that as part of the process, even outside the RFP. Um, because I do think, you know, if we ask them to, to put a, a stronger model in place, then we also have to be willing to fund it. Um, so, 
I mean, I guess I'd be open to that as part of it. I, I, I do think we need some RFP process. But anyway, I throw that out there. I know that's, I mean, we're not making any decisions tonight, but that's something I'm interested in because I do think, um, you know, we need we need to make progress on these ends, and, and sometimes that needs additional funding. So thank you on that, Danny. Anyway, that's all I have. Um, I looks like are you good? You got everything? Yeah, good. I'm okay. I'm glad Commissioner Finkel I brought up the circle back to the RFP piece. Um, I think that's something that would further would need some additional discussion on it. Um, I wouldn't. I think there are there are some partners out there who are currently not at the table, who are doing some of the gap work. Um, unfortunately, because they're not familiar with some of the bureaucracy of 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 funding and access to funding and, and being a partner with a municipal government, they don't have they don't have that opportunity. And so, an RFP would be a way to for them to have that experience and to be a partner and be a, a collaborator with an LCS. So um, I don't disagree with what uh, Commissioner Finkeldye said, but I think this is also a way for us to start thinking innovatively about what are some, who are some partners out there who are not at the table, who are doing some of the work that other partners aren't doing that could be a value add to this collaborative work, so. All right, thank you again, everyone. With that, I'll entertain motions. I move that we approve the remaining funding request amount of $145,000 of the 2022, am I reading right now? Yeah, of the 2022 Homeless and Housing Initiatives Funding Proposal for General Homeless Shelter Operations and authorize staff to draft an agreement with the Lawrence Community Shelter for the remaining 2022 General Fund Award. Second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. That passes five to zero. Thank you again, everyone. Um, Melanie Lacey, I didn't see Melissa, but thank her anyway for us. I appreciate you being here and helping us with this. Thank you. Uh, that brings us to commission items, uh, which we have two. We discussed a little bit uh, last time our city county meeting agenda. Did anyone have anything they wanted to add or thought of in between the last time and now? What's on, what's on the agenda right now? Um, I, for what it's worth, I, I spoke briefly with um, County Commissioner um, Shannon Reed, um, and she gave me a couple items that were at the top of her list, which were houselessness and... Um, Affordable housing. How long is this um, meeting going to be for the joint? The joint meeting going to be? Do we know. Forty-five minutes. Um. Sounds like a dense, ambitious agenda. Uh huh. So any other items? How many were, did she say? Like, did uh, Commissioner Reed suggest? She's, she suggested houselessness and affordable housing. 45 minute meeting. Uh-huh, yeah. Well, I, I also wondered if we might not 
she and I talked very, very briefly. We didn't get into it. Um, the Wakarusa extension issue, um, which she agreed was an issue, but also we understood we have a very finite amount of time. So I would think in the interest of time, um, one, we haven't received the final report. So unless there was a specific specific topic in regards to houselessness that was going to be discussed, that was going to be discussed. Um, we might want to save that for another time. Um, I'm not going to be at the meeting, so I don't want to dictate what your agenda is <laughs> going to be, but it may be advantageous to have a rich discussion rich discussion around the SLT and extension since that has been, um, there seem to be some questions and concerns with funding that were brought up a couple of weeks ago that warranted having, I think would warrant having county representation there to have a full whole discussion about it. But again, I'm not gonna be there. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, I will continue my correspondence with, um, it was suggested, uh, Shannon Reed and send her and I's ideas to the city manager and the county administrator to be clear about what it is we expect to talk about. Um, and I will do that. Is there any other items anyone would like to see or hear discussed if time permits? Uh, <coughs> Happy belated anniversary to our city manager who is <laughs> Thank you. celebrating his third year. Seems like it's been 25, but <laughs> in some ways. Happy anniversary. Thank you. I did have a question. Is is there a reason why it's only 45 minutes? Is it just no, that's a typical time of our discussion session or the, when we started at five o'clock, we can start at five or we can start at 545. Okay. Now, if you want to extend it past that, it's certainly up to you. So we could extend that into and plan the agenda accordingly. You just start the business meeting of the commission later. Okay. Just thought, just, just curious. I can't remember. I don't remember us. Commissioner Fingledye, anything? Okay. Um, any other commission items? Um, yeah. Not seeing any. Okay. Let's move to the city manager's report. Thank you, Mayor. Um, there are four items listed under the city manager's report. Um, an update on the uh, ESG grant uh, process. Um, also, um, kind of as a reminder, um, we are um, bringing up your attention to the CIP for the fire medical station planning memoranda that was uh, that was uh, presented some months ago. Um, the sales tax report, obviously, uh, we're experiencing some you know very positive um, trends on sales tax, which is nice to see, and we'll be talking more about next um, meeting with the uh, recommended budget. Uh, and then the future agenda items, which um, has quite a bit on it as well. Uh, any questions? Yeah, Craig, real quick. Um, on the, the emergency solutions grant, the CARES Act, the reallocation, are those 
those aren't the same dollars that were presented in resolution 7431, correct? Danny? This is Danny Walters. Um, these are additional funding dollars that the state had that come from um, either municipalities that couldn't spend all their money or projects that didn't go through. They uh, HUD extended the ESGCV grant another year. So they have been working to reallocate these. Um, I I think that we're very close to hearing about the, the results of, of this, but they put out a, a feeler to the agencies and just said, if you could use some more money, what would you be able to spend it on? And then they're looking to reallocate that so they can get that money spent because that's very important to do. Um, so it's it's contained under the same grant per se, but it's different funding that was never ours in the right. first place, I guess. Right. And so this reallocate these reallocation dollars don't require the match that the correct. Previous- yeah. Yeah. There's no match on the on the CARES Act dollars. Okay. Yep. Any other questions? Um, future agenda items. Were we, I know we received a, we received some information around um, the tobacco retail license. So are we at a place where we can put that on a future agenda item? I mean, a future agenda? It's currently on TBD. Yeah. Am I not seeing it? It's went the fourth from right. It's TBD. Yeah. So, are we at a place where we can put that on? We can assign a date to that. Um, I'm trying to recall. I think we were waiting on a legal opinion, and they, they came in. Well, yeah. we're waiting on a legal opinion. I thought. Yeah, I thought it came in. I don't know if Randy's still on. But I, it, it's just slipping my memory of whether we received that or not. I know Tony was working on it. This is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. I, I know that it's somewhere in the process, and, and I know they're looking at some things, and there was, I think they're still checking on something. So I don't think they're quite finished yet. I know they're trying to look at some things down in Newton or, or some suggestions regarding um, – how other entities are doing it where we could police it. So I know there's some more work to be done on it. Okay. All right, this is a public comment item. Yeah, this is Chris Flowers. If you're gonna talk Tobacco 21, how about scheduling it for when the students are actually in town and can speak against having their rights taken away. I mean, it's just absolute ridiculous that we're trying to to shove it as soon as possible, especially during the summer when the people who are going to have their rights taken away are are out of town. So, I mean, if 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 we're going to do a better job of like talking about I don't know, like representation and stuff like that, then we we need to be making sure that the people most affected by um, a law that we're proposing are 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 around to to voice their opinion when we're changing the law. Thank you. Any other public comment on the city manager's report? Michael Allman. <clears throat> 
Good evening, Michael Allman, and I am virtual at this point. A um, couple comments or questions on the future agenda item. Um, the, the rewrite of the Lawrence Weed Ordinance, which is now called Noxious Weed and Natural Landscaping Ordinance, was passed out of the Sustainability Advisory Board back in May and sent to the City Commission for your consideration with a recommendation for approval. Um, I think, you know, at least it should be listed under to be determined somewhere. Um, then also on that to be determined, uh, the single use bag policy, that came out of the Sustainability Advisory Board just last week, but it's the single use bag ordinance. It would be binding law as an ordinance, not a policy. So just those two corrections or suggestions. So thank you. Thank you. Any further comments on the city manager's report? That's it. All right, thank you. That brings us to calendar items. Anything need to be changed or added? All right, then. I will entertain motions. Move to adjourn. Second. No, first and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 <laughs> thank you all. Bye. Thank you. Bye.